my goal kind of with with coaching people is to teach them and have them understand why we're doing what we're doing. So if I ever stop coaching them or like for whatever reason we kind of part ways and they are able to basically coach themselves the same way I was coaching them previously. And my job, yeah, my job is to eliminate my own job, I guess. What's up, everyone? That was John Green. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. This is a very long episode, so I'll try to keep the intro short. John Green is the 26-year-old coach of Olympic marathon bronze medalist Molly Seidel. He is also the head coach of Atalanta NYC, a New York City-based nonprofit that employs and supports professional female runners that are training to achieve their goals while also serving as core mentors for its youth mentoring program. As an athlete, John was an All-American at Georgetown University, and he ran professionally for a brief period of time before turning his attention to coaching. In this conversation, we go deep into John's background as an athlete, we talk about our shared central Massachusetts roots, and then turn our attention to coaching, where we discuss working with Molly Seidel, of course, but also who has influenced his philosophy, how he views his role as a coach, where he has the most room to grow, and a lot more. This one was really good, and I hope you'll stick around for the entire two-plus hours. Before we dive in, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I've been putting in a lot of miles in preparation for next month's marathon in Boston, and more than half of them each week have been in the Fresh Foam 1080 V11. This shoe is an absolute workhorse, and it's been my go-to trainer for most of my non-workout runs in 2021. It's got great cushioning underfoot that's protective but not too soft, providing a responsive ride that I really enjoy and appreciate. I'm about to take my third pair of 1080 V11s out of the box, and I know that I'll easily get at least 500 miles on them. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is available in both men's and women's sizes on newbalance.com or at your local run specialty retail store. Check them out and give them a try today. This episode is also brought to you by Gooder. If you've been a long-time listener of the podcast, you know how much I love these sunglasses. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. They're also super fun. Gooders come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. They're also super affordable, with most pairs coming in at just $25 to $35 bucks a piece, which makes them way more appealing than those expensive shades that you're almost guaranteed to crush or lose. So, if you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair, or maybe two or three of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario, that's M-A-R-I-O, to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. Okay, please enjoy this uninterrupted conversation between me and fellow Central Massachusetts native, Coach John Green.
All right. It's always fun to have another Central Mass native on the show. John Green, welcome to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Another Central Mass guy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I mean, we were just talking about this before I hit record. I think you're probably the, the fifth central mass native that I've, I've had on the show so between like central mass natives and georgetown grads which you are i mean i've kind of covered a lot of a lot of bases here but um let's just start right there because i even though i don't live there anymore i still have a very deep connection to central massachusetts my family still lives there i spent most of my life there before moving to california 10 years ago you grew up in berlin which is a tiny town in central massachusetts i've actually run many many miles in berlin my former training partner post-collegiately, Ryan Carrera lives in Hudson. We would do long runs from his house into Berlin. The thing I can tell you about Berlin is there are a number of roads that have hill in it. And one <laughs> of my one of my favorite roads, and it was aptly named, is called Woobly. And I would mm-hmm. run that all the time on long runs. But let's just inform my listeners a little bit. Tell us about Berlin Mass, where you grew up. Well, my mom, who's probably going to listen to this, it would, would kill me if I didn't correct you. It's Berlin. It's not Berlin. It's not. It's different than uh, than Germany. So Germany, <laughs> there, is, <sure. laughs> there is that distinction. So yeah, for my mom, who's probably gonna listen to this, uh, that's, that's for her. But yeah, Berlin is a uh, a very small like is a very small t- town. Um, it's like. 25 2700 people it's it's a, a right to farm town so there's a decent not not like a big farming like uh size of farming but like there's definitely a, a few farms um around and so yeah it's a it's a it's a cool little town from a running perspective it's awesome all the roads are there's no like lines on the roads or anything like that you just kind of <laughs> run on one side cars are like pretty pretty nice for the most part where they'll move over and um where i grew up which was near the hudson berlin line or sorry northboro berlin line um there's a a trail system called mount pisca which is about three quarters to a half a mile from my house and that was sick and so that like that's where i started kind of running which was on like single track super 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 technical trails uh, now that i've learned and yeah berlin's a is a it's a sweet place for sure it's a central mass which is uh yeah the home of distance running (laughs) what was your introduction to running how old were you when you got started um, I mean, I used to run for like cross training, like I guess is the term now and for like soccer and things like that. I'd, I used to run, do the, I have a five mile loop from my house, um, that like goes down through the center of town. And I used to run that in like, uh, Adidas Sambas. And so for those yeah. who know, or indoor soccer shoes with zero cushioning. And <laughs> eventually I started getting into, by I think in, I think it was eighth grade. Like I tried sprinting as a fifth grader, and then in eighth grade, I got kind of stubborn, joined uh, joined track, and ended up breaking five minutes in the mile there. And that was kind of like the stepping stone that I had, kind of moving forward. Were there runners in your family? No, my dad was a football player, and I don't think my mom played sports. Uh, my mom rode horses. I know that. Do you remember? Aside from the cross training element, your earliest memories of of running was it that like elementary school track team stuff, and and did that light any kind of spark in you that was reignited years later? Take me through that. Yeah, like I, I guess running, I I distinctly remember doing this five mile loop. I've I've probably done it near a thousand times. Like it is, I still to this day I'll I'll still do it for for fun sometimes, and um, that's kind of my earliest me- earliest memory of running, and um, whether that was that 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 loop has been there throughout my career, and so when I think of early running, that's kind of. Uh, 
what brings me back. To, like when I think of early running, that's what, that's what I think of. And so, um, yeah, that's something where, whether it was in eighth grade when I didn't really know what I was doing with running or like what running was at all, uh, all the way up to, um, kind of when I was in college or running professionally, I was, um, <laughs> still doing that five mile loop though, adding on a lot <laughs> towards the end of the career there. <laughs> Were you competing at all in middle school or was it, when you got to high school at St. John Shrewsbury that you formally joined a team and started competing in that way? So the middle school I went to um, did have like a formal track um, team. And so I was doing races there. The races weren't like super competitive for the most part. It was just me going out probably in like <laughs> all out for the first 400 and then just like trying to recover and kick it in the final 400 um, for the mile. Things like that or like sitting and kicking in the 800 because I just wanted to win. Things like it was just like uh, middle school was definitely like in eighth grade specifically it was definitely just like very easy, um, not focused on competition competition at all. Um, and then when I got to high school, um, I really, I rode crew my fall, um, at St. John's and then I was really into ski racing at the time. And so, um, I was, I did that in the winter. And so then I came out for spring track and then the following year is kind of when I started doing multiple seasons of running where I I got into, I got convinced to do cross country. (laughs) How old were you when you started ski racing? Oh, uh, so you know this, do you know Ward Hill and yeah, uh, so that's where I used to ski race when I started out. And then I eventually started uh, racing for a team up in Waterville Valley in New Hampshire. But I started out ski racing at, at Ski Ward, a uh, little bump of a hill, maybe mm-hmm. maybe 300 vertical feet, if that. Um, and so, yeah, I had a, maybe I was, I don't even know, like early and uh, late elementary school-ish, maybe like fifth grade-ish. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, yeah, it was <laughs> very early on, I would say. What was the appeal of ski racing for you? I just really enjoyed it. I, I, I still really enjoy skiing, though I haven't gone in a number of years just because during college and running professionally, the injury risk is really high there, and um, especially since I can be a little reckless when it comes to skiing. And so um, it's just better if I just don't go up on the hill at all. <laughs> but yeah, I just really enjoy skiing. It's a, it's a really fun, um, it's very different than running, I would say, where it's um, you can just do nothing. You could literally just stand there if you wanted to, and you'll go down the hill. Um, funny enough, actually Molly Seidel, who I coach, um, she, she also used to ski race as well. And her brother's, uh, a ski racing coach out in Wisconsin. So it's funny. We have that weird connection there of (laughs) both used to be, uh, Alpine ski racers. Well, I haven't interviewed Molly yet. That is on my agenda, but while we're on the topic, I want to dig deeper into this whole ski racing (laughs) thing because it is very different than running, but I think there is something there. You mentioned how you're reckless on skis. I mean, I know downhill skiing is a very like adrenaline inducing thing what about that aspect of it like drew you drew you in yeah i mean i love going fast that that's something where like yeah i yeah lo- absolutely love going fast and so that was a really uh like fun way as a kid and now that i've kind of <laughs> am more responsible like looking at the things i would do as a kid was just like nuts like just absolutely not really realizing the consequences if uh something went wrong there and um yeah. And same with the friends that I used to ski with up, uh, in Waterville and whatnot, you, you can get a lot of speed. You can go 60 miles an hour pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that, um, yeah, you just 
tuck the whole run um, and just like hope that there's no ski patrol like that's going to see you and stuff like that. And so, I, yeah, I really enjoyed the like need for speed, if you will. And it was a ton of fun. I didn't have half the guts that some of the people that I was racing against had. I, I mean, it was wild for some of them to kick out of the gate that uh and go down the hill where i was petrified and so and that's not even we weren't even close to racing at the level of um what professionals are near or anything like that like it's yeah it's it's a very different sport a, a very different type of adrenaline um so yeah it was yeah it's 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 a cool sport i'd, I'd suggest people to check it out were there some competitive seeds that were planted there when you were ski racing as a young kid Oh yeah. I, yeah, definitely a very competitive person by nature, I would say. And so yeah, ski racing was another thing where I was pretty successful at it. Um, I think I was even, maybe I was like fourth or fifth or something like that at all States for cross or for, uh, for skiing. And so, um, like my freshman or sophomore year in high school. And so it was one of those things where it was like another thing where I was like, I was kind of excelling at it, but then realized that running was, I, I was better at and, um, kind of opened more doors, um, for like college opportunity, um, being that most, <laughs> most colleges, uh, don't have an Alpine ski racing team. I mean, you had a, an incredibly successful high school career at St. John's. I remember following it from afar, having grown up there myself, you're a state champion. You placed really well at Foot Lockers and ultimately went on to run collegiately at Georgetown. You mentioned a little while ago how you were kind of convinced to run cross country in high school. Take me take me through that. Who, you know, who kind of like tugged at those strings and got you to join the team at St. John's? <laughs> the cross country team. <laughs> so, uh yeah, there was um we had to do for I I wanted so when I went in like again going back to the competitiveness I wanted to do a, a cut sport like when I first got into high school like especially mm -hmm. that first season I was like you know what I want to do a, a sport that I can get cut from like I need I want to make sure that I'm good enough to be on this team I don't want to just be like dead weight on a team and so that was something that uh, like I was pretty <laughs> like sure I wanted to do. And so cross country, I guess like it wasn't a cut sport where anybody could do it if they wanted to. And so I came in and I was like, ah, I don't want to do cross country and uh, doesn't see it like it's not competitive or whatnot, even though there is now knowing that there is a varsity cut versus like JV cut. And right. so I came in and ended up uh, running sub five in the mile for like the tryouts for, um, for the crew rate or for, for crew. And <laughs> pissed off a few seniors, I think, because I like lapped a bunch of them and stuff like that. And so that was that was kind of my introduction to um, like kind of showing St. John's that I was kind of good at running, I guess. And then from there, a lot of a lot of kids like on the team who I became friends with later, coaches kind of like, hey, listen, like you should try. Uh, you should try cross country in the fall, next fall. And um, same with one of the crew coaches that I had as a teacher. He was like, hey, listen, like you're you're good at crew, but like you're obviously a little bit better at running and you should try to try to step into that. And so I, I, I did <laughs> reluctantly a little bit, but, um, it was, it was a ton of fun and obviously still talk to some of the guys that I was on the team with now, uh, back at St. John's now. And so, yeah, it was, it was, it was a different introduction. I like to try different sports for sure. And, but 
have definitely kind of settled on running now. <laughs> it's interesting to hear you say that because I went to St. John's for my freshman year of high school and I went there because I wanted to play basketball. And St. John's yeah. <laughs> is a very good basketball program. I mean, year in oh, and yeah. year out, it's one of the top teams in the States, Division One, which are the bigger schools in the state. And it's a really hard team to make. And if we're being honest, it's also kind of political as well as far as getting on <laughs> yes. some of those teams, especially as a freshman. And I mean, long story short, I, I didn't make the basketball team at St. John's, which totally like devastated me, but I knew I could play high school basketball. And that's why I left. I mean, that's ultimately why I left yeah. St. John's was so that I could play high school basketball. And I ended up going to Auburn High, which is the town I, I grew up in. And I did play basketball there for two years before finding running. But it's interesting to hear you just describe your experience of going there and being like, I want to be on a no cut team. And if you're on a no-cut team at St. John's, you know you're a damn good athlete because it's hard to make those teams. Uh, it's such a big school and it has just such a robust athletic history to it. Yeah, for sure. It's yeah, St. John's is kind of known in the Central Mass area, I guess, for being um, competitive and uh, competitive in all forms of athletics. And so, yeah, that's another one where yeah, that's that's where our rivals come from, from Wachusett to Shrewsbury High or whatnot. Like everybody's kind of like, especially in the big sports for sure, like basketball, football, soccer is another one for us. And um, and eventually, cross country, we started to make our name a little bit in cross country, which was which was really cool. When you started running cross country, when did you first start to not show some promise because you'd already shown promise in, in, in other ways, but make an impact as far as being able to get on the varsity squad or be in the scoring seven? So I was in the scoring seven from the like first race I did as a sophomore. Um, mm -hmm. And so I was a sophomore at the time. I wasn't a freshman. And um, I, I vividly remember like having an argument <laughs> looking back is like, I'm surprised my coach didn't smack me and tell me to shut up and go on my way. But I remember we had a dual meet against, I don't even know what school at our home course, like a week and a half or two weeks before um, like the ocean state cross country meet, which is a mm -hmm. big, big like race that people come go to down in Rhode Island. And I was, I, I just wanted to race. And so I wanted to do this dual meet and I argued with my coach, argued with my coach and finally stopped arguing him, arguing with him once, uh, once the gun went off. And so I was like, well, I guess I can't join now. And so, and then I stepped into, um, that first race I did at ocean States, which I was in the varsity, like top seven. Um, and I went out way too fast. I went out, like I was lactic the first, after the first 800 <laughs> and then just went backwards from there. It was just a disaster of a race. But I mean, that's how most people kind of start their, like, uh, their racing careers is getting, getting smoked and learning the hard lessons quickly. <laughs> Who was your cross country coach at St. John's? Um, so Richard Ovian was my cross country coach, um, for all the years. And then, um, shortly after I left, um, uh, John Murray, who some might know who grew up in central mm -hmm. mass and he's a coach at Northeastern university. Now, um, his dad then took it over. And so, um, who was, I, I wouldn't say a competitor of mine in high school. He smoked me every day and, um, of every race we went into. And then he was actually, he was the reason kind of why I ended up headed, heading to Georgetown after, uh, after I graduated St. John's. Man, it's, I mean, Central Mass is a small place, but what, what a small world. Because when I was <laughs> yeah. in high school, which was the late 1990s, I would do a lot of like the Central Mass Striders, like weekend 5Ks and some of their oh, yeah. track workouts on Tuesday nights. And, and Richard Ovian was the, he was a master's runner at the time, but he was pretty good. And he was at a mm -hmm. lot of those track workouts. And I actually remember racing like 5Ks against him in, you know, in, in high school. And at the time, he was, 
looking to get into, you know, high school coaching and it was, you know, not that many years later that he finally did. And I, I don't know if he's still at St. John's. I know he was there for quite a while. Yeah. I don't think he's there anymore, but yeah, he's, yeah, he was, he was very fundamental. I'm making sure that I wasn't over raced or he, he looked after me for like my long-term success, I think. And um, yeah, and just really helped me succeed at St. John's. And I definitely wouldn't have been in able to go to Georgetown without, cause I, I, I wasn't great at track running, to be honest with you. I had some success in indoors on occasion, but mostly um, my success came from, um, from cross country. And that's probably why I was recruited mainly for making like foot lockers and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And so, yeah, he, he was the reason behind me getting recruited, uh, for the most part, which was, which was really, yeah, really cool. So you started running cross country that sophomore year. Did track come into the picture that same year? Did you run indoors or was there a little bit of a gap before you joined the track team? Yeah. So I didn't do indoor track until my junior year. Um, okay. and so I, my, f- I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I'm pretty sure on that one. Yeah. I th- yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Until my junior year is when I, uh, like joined the indoor track team. So that was kind of when I'd, I, I took the, the full dive into, uh, all three sports or all three seasons of, uh, track running <laughs> or running, I should say. When did you start to think about running after high school and trying to see if you could get on to a college program? Yeah, I, I guess I didn't really think about it much until I was um, kind of a junior in, in high school. Um, I had some success where I was I, I won a state title in cross country my my junior year, and mm-hmm. so I think that's kind of what said. I was like, okay, like I've I've won a state title. Like I think I could run in um, in college, and eventually started talking with like other people who had graduated um, George or great graduated St. John's. Um, one being I remember Dan Zawalik, which I'm not yep. sure if um, that name rings a bell, but yeah. So him, I, I remember like visiting him in college and like seeing like what 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 running was like in college and stuff like that. And to be honest with you, my grades weren't <laughs> great in, uh, in high school. And so that was kind of my main way of getting into, into like a good school for sure. And so, um, yeah, I was able to, I was getting able to get into Georgetown pretty much only because of, uh, running. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> Why do you think you were such a better cross country runner than you were on the track? Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. That's how hard I, I enjoy. I think cross is something that kind of clicked quickly for me. And I've always kind of said that to whether it's talking with uh, people when I was running at Georgetown or uh, like onwards, like cross country is such different running, um, even from the high school level to the collegiate level. Like I think there's a, it just needs to click at one point and mm-hmm. you kind of get how to run in a pack or like run cross country, but it's a very different style of running. It's not just like a go out. We're going to grind, grind the pace out. It's, it's, it's more about being smart and not wasting energy and knowing what the course is kind of going to be like out there. And, um, yeah, just knowing, just knowing, (laughs) yeah, just knowing how to run cross is, is a very different thing for sure. You saw a lot of, improvement from that sophomore year when you started to your junior year when you won a state title. I think you repeated as state champion your senior year, if I'm not mistaken. Talk to me about the training aspect of things in in high school and what you did that you think contributed to your success at that time. Yeah. um, (laughs) Training in high school, I remember, so I didn't run 
So my first summer that I, I, I ran, I, we went to, we had planned on going to the Foss running camp, which I'm, yep. <laughs> I'm sure you know of and legendary uh, from New England knows about it. And, um, so I remember like signing up for it, but then not training at all, um, during the, the summer leading into like leading into my sophomore year, um, to the point where, um, I, my, my coach Richard Hovian asked for a, my training log and I gave him a blank book, <laughs> like a blank <laughs> notebook. And, um, with like a week's worth of training in it. Cause I went to Foss and ran 60 miles a week, just like zero to 60. And so, um, he looked at it and he ended up using it to start a fire. He told me <laughs> like That's a campfire, great. which is, which is a great line. <laughs> And so, um, yeah, it was just one of those things where, and then kind of going into my, I had some success, uh, like in cross country and outdoor track and stuff like that. And so that's kind of when, uh, it led me more towards, all right, I'm going to train for it. I don't really remember what my training was like, to be honest with you. Um, the idea of using a log was really strange. I like, I remember during, like, I remember not wanting to run on the weekends and like hating long runs. And so I remember telling like, <laughs> if Richard Owen's listening to this, he, he can know that I lied to him a little bit. Uh, I remember just like never doing long runs and he'd be like, yeah, go run 10. I'd be like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and so I just run like five days a week and yeah, I don't even know what mileage was. Like <laughs> it was just kind of like, we go out for a four mile run and like probably play a game of basketball halfway through it and then jog back. Like <laughs> that was kind of, uh, the training, I guess in high school, it wasn't like, it wasn't anything like specific or anything like that for sure. <laughs> Were you a fan of the sport at all in high school? Did you follow what was happening collegiately or with professionals at the time? Not at all, really. Like I, to this day, I mean, I, I follow it a lot more than I did in high school, right. but to this day, I still don't like, I don't comb through results for the most part unless I'm doing recruiting for the team down in um, in New York at Atlanta. Um, unless I'm, yeah, unless I'm going with a purpose of like combing through results, looking for something, I I generally don't like. Um, I, I kind of watched a little bit of pre this past weekend. I <laughs> I didn't watch like any of the Olympics actually, which I felt was, I was just like a little too close to it, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but like I feel, yeah, I feel like I haven't, I don't pay super close attention to it. Um, I follow like actually <laughs> this past year, I've gotten to like Formula One, which has been kind of like a, a weird, like fun thing. My brother's really into cars, and so mm-hmm. that's been something me and him get to chat about and stuff. And hopefully, we'll go see a race at some point. But um, yeah, I don't follow it like as closely as some people. I'm definitely like in the know where I can obviously have a, a very intelligent conversation about it and talk about things, but I might not know the like immediate, I'm not quick to check results as soon as they come up, unless it's a friend racing or somebody I know or an athlete or something like that. Aside from your own running in high school, what were some of your other interests outside of it? Uh, not much. I didn't have, yeah, I just kind of hung out with friends. That was like, it's kind of what we did. Um, yeah, just hang out on the weekends and yeah, I didn't, I'm not a huge partier. I'm still not a huge partier for the most part. And so, um, yeah, I didn't, I never drank in high school. So like, yeah, I was, I was a pretty like boring person for the most part. (laughs) Take me through the process of choosing a college and how you ended up at Georgetown. Yeah. Um, choosing college was like, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, to this day, I still joke with my old, my, one of my teammates who grew up in, uh, Lenox, Massachusetts, which is far Western mass, mm-hmm. um, which was that we like stumbled into an excellent situation and like the possibly the best situation we possibly could have had. 
Um, and so that was something that was, um, we were really lucky for. Um, so I, I ended up like looking at a few different schools. Um, I was, I went to, uh, visit Northeastern university, um, when Rennie Waldron was there, who's now down at Davidson, I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, I, really got along with Rennie. He was an excellent guy and, um, he ended up leaving and leaving, uh, Northeastern, um, right after I kind of had verbally committed. And so he, he was excellent. And I think he kind of spread my name around of like this guy who like might be pretty good potentially. And, um, I ended up talking with, uh, Georgetown cause my grades had gone up. Um, and I'd done better on the SATs. That was something that I talked to them early, especially since John Murray had gone there and wanted like a good academic school, but an al- also a good athletic school. And so Georgetown was kind of that dream there, but with the reality of like, I need to get my grades up. And so I did that, did better on the SAT and took a quick, like my senior year, I think I was there for less than 24 hours and John Murray hosted me. And, um, it was, it was a very quick trip, but I kind of like knew before going there, unless something went poorly that I, I wanted to go there and yeah, just stumbled into, uh, like the team wasn't as great as I probably thought it was when I first went there. I th- we, we made nationals once or that, that previous year. And I was like, Oh, congrats. You guys made Nats. And the coach, we had bombed that year, I think. And he was just like, Oh yeah. Like <laughs> <What's so laughs> we great? definitely, yeah, we just try to do that. <laughs> Who was the coach there at the time? Um, so the director of it of track and field there was Pat Henner, um, who's now at mm-hmm. ASU. And then um, my coach, who I kind of worked with um, throughout there that time, was um, Brandon Bonzi. But then um, Mil- uh, Chris Miltenberg, who's now at UNC, previously of Stanford, uh, he had just left, and so Mike Smith had just stepped in the year before, I think, um, coming in from Flagstaff. And Mike Smith, former podcast guest, another Central Mass native. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk about that aspect of it. I mean, he was there. Obviously, he's quite a bit older than you. You knew John Murray. You stayed with him when you went to visit. I believe, I don't know if he was there at the time, but Mike Banks, who ran at Wachusett, was at Georgetown. I mean, there have been a, a few notable Central Mass runners through the years that have gone through there. Did you consider that at all when you were looking at the school? Um. Kind of, again, I didn't know track and field that well, to be honest with you. I didn't, I had no idea who Mike's, I didn't even know he was the coach, to be honest with you. I like <laughs> when I was looking at it, I didn't know who like Brandon Bonzi was or Pat Henner. I remember like thinking uh, Bonzi was like a really kind of older dude. And so when he was in, I think, yeah, he was probably early 30s at that point. He, he like showed up and I was like, oh, this is not who I expected to like show up. Like I didn't know what any of them looked like or like what the team was like. I knew Ahmed Bilay and Darren Fahey from Foot Lockers, they had gone there. And so like they influenced my decision a little bit, but mostly it was John Murray, to be honest with you. Like I had looked up to him a ton in, in high school and um never was, like I said, never close to him racing. And I was like, you know what, if he's if he's doing the things he's doing at Georgetown, then like that seems like a cool place to be. And um yeah, and so that was that he was a major decision like maker for me, at least on uh aside from getting into the school was, uh, was him being there and like liking it. Did you go there on athletic scholarship? I did. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was also, that was nice as well to get such a great education at, um, at such a high level, um, for definitely a reduced cost. And were there any other schools outside of new England or the East coast that were looking at you or was it basically like Georgetown, Northeastern and you were pretty set on Georgetown because you knew John and looked up to him so much. 
Yeah, so I took I took visits to Northeastern, my official visits to Northeastern, uh, Providence, and Penn State and Georgetown. I should have taken the fifth one to like University of Hawaii, but I wasn't smart enough at that point. So, um, but yeah, I, I had talked to a couple other coaches. I remember speaking with Nick Byrne um, from Wisconsin at one point. Um, but yeah, I, I again, I wasn't looking uh, like on wet, at West Coast schools for the most part. Um, I, I asked Notre Dame, I, it's funny now, like I have the connection to Notre Dame, but, um, now, but like I had reached out to the coach there at the time and he was just like, yeah, sorry, your academics, like just, we cannot get you in. And so, and that was the same thing I heard back from a lot of schools. <laughs> I was filling out pretty much every single like recruitment questionnaire I possibly could at that point. <laughs> and did you have any idea what you wanted to study in college or at that point, did you just know you wanted to run and you would figure the academics? side of it out once you got there yeah i had no idea what i wanted to do i think oh no actually i did i wanted to go into the business school i wanted to go into the business school but they couldn't get me into the business school um in the beginning because my grades weren't high enough so i had to get uh i think it was above a 3-0 or something like that or maybe 3-2 or 3-5 something it was it was it was something that was unattainable in the end um <laughs> and so uh yeah i tried i like tried doing that and then i just like i couldn't get into the business school the business school also required language uh like a language requirement um and i believe or no it didn't and that's was that was a huge benefit because i i'm terrible at speaking different languages barely speak english well enough and so um <laughs> yeah but i ended up uh i didn't really know what i wanted to do i just business was like a good like all-encompassing kind of degree and um ended up graduating and kind of finding psychology and sociology just through like going through gen ed requirements and i was like oh well sociology seems cool and easy-ish for the most part and then um i had taken a couple psychology classes and i kind of i enjoy psychology and so that was another one i kind of just like stumbled into and ended up getting a double major there yeah, I, I can totally relate to that. I, mean, I went to I went to Stonehill College, and it's a liberal arts school, so you have a lot of options in front of you. I changed my major a bunch of times, and for me, I got to a point where I'd taken enough philosophy classes where I was like, well, I might as well major in it. And same thing with my psychology minor. I was like, well, it's only two more classes for the minor. Might as well do that. I have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but it'll come in handy someday. Exactly. It's just like, eh, you're just like like pulling around the book of like, oh, what do they have for majors? And then like I had a couple classes at the end and I was like, do you think I could get like another major? Can I triple major? Can I get a minor? <laughs> and they're like, no, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> what was that transition like for you to Georgetown, both just going from small town, central Massachusetts to D.C., big university, and then from St. John's high school, tight knit cross country team to a division one program? Yeah, I, I remember getting to Georgetown and just being like the summer leading into it, just being terrified, absolutely terrified of the academics. Like that was my biggest fear. It was like I academically, I knew I didn't belong. Um, like athletically, I knew I was like, all right, like I, I do have like I made footlockers at least like I have some type of credentials for the most like kind of like I'll come in and just like see what I can do that that I can like will myself through essentially. But mm -hmm. academics was like, if I don't get it, I don't get it. I don't know what to do. <laughs> And so that was something that was definitely, um, yeah, like I was the most scared of that um, because like being at St. John's, like I think there was one other kid in my class who ended up going to Georgetown and he was like in the top five of the ranking of the class. And so that was definitely my like biggest, like what I was the most scared of um, from like going from rural, like Massachusetts to uh, like to Berlin from to DC. 
I didn't really know what to expect for the most part. Um, my dad, I remember sitting me, he sat me down and was like, listen, like this is a city. It's dangerous. Kind of like, <laughs> I remember him giving me that talk, but like, other than that, he was just like, yeah, I, I don't, that, I just remember being petrified of the academics and then just really excited to like run with the guys. But I had an IT band issue leading into college. And so I, I didn't get to like run with anybody until like championship season of cross country where I wasn't on the team. I or I wasn't like, competing for the team i was just like being like being able to do like their easy runs with them so it was a really like in the beginning it was a little hard for me because i was like i didn't get to bond i mean you know like we all we all talk while running and just chat and catch up and stuff like that and i didn't get to do that in the beginning and so um i was on the injury list and so i got to meet a few people that way and um yeah i got laughed at quite a bit for for my swimming that's what i got known for real quick at <laughs> george Shan on the team is my inability to swim <laughs> do you think not being able to run with the cross-country team for most of that freshman year made it easier or more challenging as you transitioned into college um it was definitely a harder transition um for the most part just again it's like you like the biggest thing you get with a team is you're spending 40 hours a week with these people. You know what I mean? More if you're living with them, you know? And so that's kind of like, whether it's eating or whatnot, or like running, like, I didn't know, I didn't know what time we ate dinner at, you know what I mean? Um, at Georgetown, it's funny. We call it like, right after practice, you go to, you get dinner. And like, I was used to eating dinner at home at like 6 PM or 7 PM. And so by the time I showed up for dinner, everybody was like kind of gone. And so that was like, it was just little things like that where I didn't like, I didn't know I was like, yeah, I was cross training, um, on the side and you know what I mean? Wasn't, wasn't able to run with them. So it was a little difficult that way. Um, but it was, it was definitely like, wouldn't change my experience at all there. Like it was, it was an awesome experience at Georgetown. I really enjoyed it for sure. But, um, if I ever kind of step into the collegiate coaching, that's something that like, make sure I kind of pay attention to and mm -hmm. like based off of my own experiences of like making sure like, yeah, yeah. And, and my coaches there, Brandon Bonzi and Pat Hender made sure that like the older guys who were injured, uh, um, Max Dara, who grew up on the Cape actually. And then Tyler Anion or some who might know who was really good in um, high school and had a lot of success before coming to Georgetown where he also had success there um he they like they took me under my under their wing and like really helped me there but it was also one of those things where i was like hey, i don't know what to do like i was just kind of that weird freshman i was definitely that weird freshman on the team to start out <laughs> when did you first start to build some momentum on the running front you mentioned how you were running with the team toward the end of the cross-country season were you able to put it together for a while after that and have a track season in the winter and spring um yeah so i was then redshirted um my like I, I got another Achilles issue, I think. Um, so I was just like, I was dealing with more tendonitis issues. I learned a lot about tendonitis issues <laughs> that first year. Um, but so I, I was kind of banged up through midwinter and then started to kind of put training together. And um, Bonzi, my coach at the time, he he basically was like, listen, we're just going to shoot for um, trying to qualify for the World Junior Champs, um, which was in Eugene in 2014. And so that's kind of like, that was what I was shooting for and I barely qualified for the qualifying race for the USATF like junior champs, but that's kind of like, I remember working out with a couple of the guys and like having some success and like doing well. And I was like, Oh, I'm not getting dropped by them. Like, and this was Andrew Springer at the time who is the top guy on the team. And I was like, all right, like, if I'm if I'm there with him in the race and he qualified for nationals that year, I think like, I was like, I must be like, kind of in shape then <laughs> like and so but again not knowing anything about training at that point i was trying to learn as much as i could but um it was still very early on on my like 
um, understanding of like what, how training works for the most part. Yeah. What were you doing training wise at the time that was maybe different from what you did in high school, but certainly coming off of an injury to get you back to good health so that you could train consistently and compete at a high level. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of, uh, Bonzi's and Pat Henry's like patience with me, to be honest with you. <laughs> there was a few times where they sat me down there like, dude, listen, like we got to be like smart. I, I twisted my ankle running, uh, pretty bad, like just on a street. And he was just like, dude, we can't have this. And like, at the time I was like, how can you like prevent a rolled ankle? But like, there is ways to prevent rolled ankles and like silly things like that from happening. It's, it's just something that like, it's, 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 it's just putting, not putting yourself in situations like that. And so from training, I remembered being very skeptical of training. Um, I take, I'm somebody who like takes a while to buy in. And I remember doing a specific, it was like five by mile or something like that. It was probably a threshold, like what they considered threshold, but it was at the same pace that I had done like all out, like four by mile repeats or whatever, um, in, in high school. And I was like, Oh, okay. So like, they've got me to a higher fitness level after training for only a few weeks and like, all right, so these, like these guys know what they're doing here. And so then I kind of started to buy in and just try to ask not, um, why we were doing something, but try to understand of the mm -hmm. why we were doing something and, and go from there. And so, but I couldn't, I couldn't really remember what we were doing exactly. Like, again, it was just like, at, at Georgia, we do a little bit more like consistency is probably prioritized a little bit. And so things are a little bit slower, which is probably why I was able to hang on to Andrew Springer's workout that day was like, because, um, because it was just a little bit of an easier workout and probably for him than it was for me. But, um, yeah, that's kind of, it was, it was their patience for sure. That really just kind of helped me there. <laughs> Once you got over that hump and bought into what they were telling you, is that when things started to really click and you were able to stay healthy and have a thriving career for the rest of your time at Georgetown? Yeah, I still struggled with injuries, to be honest with you. I like uh, tendonitis was always something that like I'm very like stiff for the most part. Like my like my ankles are always locked up. I can't touch my toes for the life of me. Like I go into a PT and they do an analysis and they're like, oh, my goodness, you how do you get out of bed in the morning? Yeah, exactly. Like and so that was probably that led to some injuries and stuff like that. And I was probably too stubborn to even realize it at that point. But, and cause I was just like, uh, I'm happy to run and do whatever. And, um, yeah, it was just kind of, yeah, from there on, it was just like, if I got injury, I like worked on fixing it and like worked with, um, the training room at Georgetown or seeing some other PTs in the area and just being able to, yeah, hopefully like get back on track as fast as I possibly could. Um, but yeah. What did you want to get out of your collegiate athletic career? Like what were your your goals for yourself at Georgetown? Yeah, I actually I if, if Bonzi listens to this, I remember like him asking me distinctly, like, what do you think you can do in your like career? Um and I just remember like I think I can make the Olympic trials, which kind of ironically is the one thing I never did. And so like I had success. I just again it was that um like I struggled on the track and I just struggled to race well on the track. Um, I had obviously had run some faster times, I guess, um, nothing compared to what they're running now by any means. But, um, I just had a lot of my success on the cross country team, uh, on the cross country fields and the course, I guess. And, 
Um, so I, I, I remember finishing like, uh, my, I don't even know what year it was. Um, when I, I got fifth at cross country, that was something where I, I remember like thinking like the week after I was like, well, like that's like seeing the names that have done that in the past. Like that is something that's really cool. And like, like almost like what, where do I go from here? But then it was just like, well, I want to run faster. You know what I mean? I still haven't walked down the track the track the track running you know and so yeah i again it was just like i was definitely a little naive and what to think and like what was what it would take to make the olympic trials um i thought 1345 would make it which just wasn't true (laughs) you mentioned earlier how you're not one to really look at results right away or follow the sport too closely during your time at georgetown aside from what you know, your teammates were doing, obviously you're well aware of what's going on amongst them and in your conference and nationally, because you, ha- you have to, as an, as an athlete, were you interested at all in the, the approach to training and coaching and how Henner and Bonzi were, were thinking about that? You mentioned how you would ask questions just to understand what it was that you were doing, but was that, is it fair to say that was an interest of, of yours at that point of your career? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily coaching was the interest, but it was mm-hmm. um, the end goal was just understanding what we were doing. And I eventually like Bonzi and I would have like I'd ask. I was always the first person to like I wanted to ask what what the workout was. And I I eventually would start guessing at it and be like, hey, we, let me guess. We're doing like hills and 200s tomorrow. And you'd be like, kind of. No, we're doing that on Friday. Like and so that's eventually where I something clicked going into my junior year where I went out to Boulder with some of my teammates and we just trained out there. And, um, that was the first summer I ran a hundred miles a week. And I remember like pitching the idea to Bonzi of like, I want to try to run a hundred miles a week in singles. And he, he was like, all right, like if you can do that, go for it. Like, um, let's do that. And he kind of eventually you start out as like, not, he didn't definitely didn't trust me in the beginning of like, and you, kind of shouldn't with like a new training plan of like (laughs) he was telling me every day, like how much I should run, um, like how much mileage every day and whatnot. And then eventually kind of switched over to the more like senior members of the team get to choose their given a mileage at the end of the week and then are able to choose what, how much they want to run each day. And, um, yeah, eventually he would just be like, I'd come in, he'd know, like I'd run workouts past him leading into, um, like the cross country season be like, Hey, listen, like, are you okay if I do like this workout with like, uh, a, a teammate, old teammate of mine in Flagstaff or, um, or we're in Boulder. Can we do this? And he'd just be like, yeah, that's fine. And I always check in with him because he was the coach at the end of the day. But, um, in the, in the, like it, towards the end it was, and then when we came in for cross country, it was like, I was fully on the, the team's schedule and stuff like that, of course. But um, yeah, it was definitely something where he, he was really patient and like would teach me a lot of things and whether he knew it or not, he was, he was always willing to like be open and honest about, um, a conversation about what training was and stuff like that. And I don't think all coaches are like that by any means. And so, yeah, definitely looking back on that, this is another thing where I just kind of stumbled into something that I didn't know, like how good it would be for me long-term. And that was definitely one of those things that was like very, very formative in my, like, like where I'm at now. We're going to talk more about that here in a little bit, but since you just mentioned it, what were or are some of the biggest things that you learned from Coach Bonzi during your time at Georgetown that have sort of shaped and influenced your perspective now? Uh, it's just like patience, like patience at the end of the day. Like um, there was obviously times where he, he like he was like 
he, with me at least, he was just like, Hey, listen, like we need to do this. And like, um, like the, the old ankle thing, I, I doubt he'd remember it, but he like, that was another time that was like a big changing, like of him being like, Hey, listen, like I'm being patient with you. I really think you can be good, but like, we need to like get these little things under control and stuff like that. And so, yeah, that was something, um, especially with like Pat Henner, coach Henner, while I was there as well, who's another one who was just like, yeah, just super helpful. And like, yeah, just like, teaching me and just willing to like talk about things and like I'd go to their office and just chat for a period of time and stuff like that. And that was something that was, um, yeah, just like being open to us and not being like, all right, this is the coach's bubble. And like the athletes are completely separated and stuff like that. Like at the end, like definitely by the end of my like, uh, coaching or not coaching my athletic career at Georgetown, like definitely Bonzi and I are definitely good friends and we still keep in contact to this day. Let's talk a bit about Coach Henner because I think he's one of the most underappreciated coaches in the country. (laughs) And I I just think about people that I've had on this podcast from you right now to Mike Smith, who's the director at Northern Arizona University, Chris Miltenberg, who is at UNC. I've had Frank Gagliano on who Henner worked under him for, for a little while. I mean, he's had a lot of influence on a lot of athletes, but also a lot of coaches who are in the game today. He was the director at Georgetown when you were there. It doesn't sound like he was the guy who was writing your program every day, but he had a presence and you had time with him. What did you learn during your time with Henner that really was impactful and influential on you? Yeah, I think he just like, it's hard. It's hard to say. It's just like for those who know Coach Henner, he's or Pat Henner. He's just like he's an awesome guy who he he loves rock climbing. Like that's his like that's his like a big passion of his aside from coaching as well. And um, yeah, I just I it, it's it's hard to point. It's same thing with like Bonzi. It's hard to point exactly what like specifically I learned from him. Um, but like just like the little things of like caring about your sport. Like he worked with me a lot on like getting on a good schedule and like buying into a program for, for one thing, which um, is obviously like invaluable with a team. Like you need to have people who are like living, living the life of a, like a fast distance runner to like succeed. And obviously um, there is not like, there's obviously going to be times where like during the summer and stuff like that, you can like stay up a little later and stuff like that. But, um, he was really kind of like emphasizing like, Hey, listen, like we need to like, we need to try to go to bed at like 10 PM. Like, um, like we need to try to like be, be in bed early and like make sure we're getting good sleep. And, um, that was something I struggled with. Like I was really, like I said, scared of academics early on. And so there was times where I was in the library until like 2 AM and stuff like that, just trying to like, get get health get get work done so i can like not not drop out of georgetown and um so that was that was something where he kind of helped of like hey listen like we just got to work on like time management um at mm-hmm. the end of the day and that's like it's something that like everybody deals with but like we need to work on it and so he was yeah he was really helpful with that and um yeah for sure like especially early on he was <laughs> he definitely got frustrated with me which is very understandable i would have been very frustrated with myself as well and so um but yeah he he was another one he was just like yeah very caring and he- willing to help me he he would go to like make sure i was getting pt and stuff like that and um yeah getting getting the help i needed in order to like see a podiatrist up in philly or something like that if i if to get the help i needed at the end of the day with my um with the injuries that i had do you think you were a difficult athlete to coach <laughs> probably at times. Yeah. Like I, like, 
Yeah, I. That would be a great question for like for an open candid question for like Mike <laughs> or Bonzi or Henry. Yeah, that would be like I definitely was like. Or my teammates, they could probably be like, yeah, he was a pain in the ass. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, I probably was difficult at times for sure. Um, I could be very stubborn. That's one thing I can definitely be is, is stubborn. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I was probably like more difficult than others. Definitely more difficult than the athlete who's just like, yep, I will do exactly what you say. I don't like I don't want to know why I'm just going to do it. Um, and so, yeah, I was probably a little bit more difficult. Um, I probably gave them some good laughs as well. I remember like going to Bonzi with this idea that I was going to double qualify for regionals in the five and 10, my senior year or my fifth year at Mount Sac. And I was like, yeah, like there's plenty. I mean, there's only like 24 hours between them, but I think I can do it. And he was just like, absolutely not. (laughs) Like we are definitely not going to do that. And so there was, there was definitely some like, Johnisms, if you will, of uh, of uh, yeah, <laughs> my time at Georgetown. Where does that stubbornness come from? Has it always been there for you? <laughs> Both my parents, I think, would be probably pretty stubborn as well. And so it's just yeah, it's I, I like to debate and argue um, where I think it's enjoyable. Like I like I'm not I'm not actually, I'm not picking a fight to pick up. Like I'll pick a fight to pick a fight, but more is just like kind of tease out the like where you're coming from, if you will, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, with that comes like, (laughs) comes people who get like pissed off with it. And I, and I understand. And like, I definitely like piss off people when I, like, I don't realize I am at times. And so I think over time I've, I'm, I'm trying to come and become more self-aware at that. And that's definitely something I'm trying to like self-work on myself with, um, for sure. And ask people like my, definitely my good friends around me be like, Hey, listen, like, if you feel like I'm crossing the line, just like tell me kind of thing. And so, yeah, definitely, definitely a little stubborn, that Boston stubbornness, if you will. <laughs> no, I, I can totally relate to that, but it does sound like you've developed enough self-awareness to at least be open to changing your mind on something. If someone can make a strong enough argument for whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think so. And one thing, and it's, it's how I like work now is I think Bonzi obviously would, um, he, he would be like, Hey, listen, we're not doing that double at Mount Sac. That's really stupid. Um, so there's times where he's just like a hard, fast, no, but there's Mm -hmm. also times where he'd be like, yeah, like, I don't know if that's a good idea. And he just, he would, and that's, I think what makes him such a great coach. And same thing with Pat Henner and Mike Smith is they would, they would be like, yeah. And so you'd go into the office being like, I'm going to, I want to do this. I want to do this. And you'd leave being like, why was I even thinking that this is a way better idea of like, whether it's training wise or whether it's race schedule or like races you can do or anything like that. I remember like going into coach Henner's office and being like, dude, I want to go to, I want to go to, uh, where is it? Leadville, Colorado to train this summer. And he was just like, yeah, like, I think that's a great idea, like in the future, but like right now, I think it's a better idea if we, if we don't go up to altitude, cause your body's not recovering properly right now. And like, why don't you just go, you go back home, like you can have some fun. Like we're going to try to do that junior world champs. And like, that wouldn't be enough time at altitude anyways. And like, just kind of giving me a list of ideas. So I left being like, yeah, why would I go to Colorado or like Leadville? And then the next year being like, oh, I was so stupid for trying to go to 10,000 feet. Like the running is terrible. Like it might be terrible. I've never been. So people who are up in level, please leave me alone. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful place. The trails are amazing, but it is tough running over 10,000 feet. I can tell you that from personal yeah, experience. Exactly. And so the next summer we decided to go to Colorado in Boulder or go to Boulder, Colorado instead of Leadville, which is a way better decision to make. And so a way more fun time, you know? And so that was, and that was kind of the way that they kind of 
like changed my ideas and so used that stubbornness to their advantage and just kind of like applied force when they needed to to tell me like a hard fast no but then instead kind of like ending the idea towards something that made more sense and and that taught me why they were thinking what they were thinking how much did you and mike smith overlap at georgetown he was there uh when did he leave um I think he left right before my senior year, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think he left in like 2016 or 2017. Like, so we overlapped. I got there in 2013. And so we overlapped for a decent amount of time. I didn't get to know him really until um, probably the later part of my um, freshman year because he was super busy with his um, – his uh his his coaching there and I, I know he's kind of spoken about it in the past of like coming into coaching being the head coach of a, a division one like program where he he went to school there and stuff so i think he felt a, a decent amount of pressure there for sure and so eventually yeah i got to overlap with him and spend some time and really got got to know him for the most part which is excellent what did you guys connect over i mean obviously you have shared central massachusetts roots you said you didn't even know anything about that when you when you initially got there when did when did those things start to click for you two i don't know i don't really remember i just remember him coming up and being like oh yeah you're you're the central mass di like i i like he's like my um like i'm from um central mass as well and we started connecting over that and um, rival high schools yeah, rival high schools and stuff. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was just something that was. Um, yeah, just I don't really know when it started, and then I just remember like <laughs> Mike Smith would like always have these long conversations with the women's team before their workout, and like he would like I remember the men's team would always like be like why are they talking for this long? Like we, the joke was we'd come back from our workout and they were just starting to warm up. Like it was um, <laughs> that was like the running joke on the team, and so. Um, I remember like hearing like in obviously like his voice is not a central mass. <laughs> like he doesn't sound like he's from central mass at all. And so it was kind of like, all right, who is this guy? And like, like, and just, it was eventually just like sharing stories and whatnot. And like, then understanding like, Oh, well he worked under Jack Daniels for a good period of time and um, like worked with the, the Japanese national team and stuff like that. And so he, it was also picking his brain about that. And I remember asking a couple of women for their like training logs um, and just being like, looking at what they were doing was so different than what we were doing, I felt like. And so it was understanding like why, and they're having a ton of success as well. It's like, why are they doing what they're doing, having success? And we're doing what we're doing and having success. So there's obviously a million ways to skin a cat. So how are we like, and what, why is it different and why is it working? And so that's kind of the first time I remember being like, all right, like what's going on here? It's, it's interesting to hear you describe that. Cause it sounds like aside from, you know, asking Bonzi about your own training and you know why you're doing what you're doing but looking at another team that you have nothing to do with I mean you you run for the same university but two different programs but you're you're interested in you know how they're having success it sounds like that's where maybe some of the seeds of like the coaching seeds that you know have since grown and we'll talk about here in a bit were initially planted yeah, for sure. 100%. That's, that was definitely something that was, um, seeing the contrasting differences and then kind of realizing that, 
uh, across, then looking across the country and being like, oh, there's a ton of different like methodologies be- behind training and stuff like that. And um, that's kind of, yeah, what started to tease out the idea of like, okay, there's different ways um, to do this. And I remember asking um, one of the athletes on the, or the women, ath- female athletes on the team, I was like, can I look at your log? And <laughs> that was, I felt like kind of uncomfortable asking that because I knew I kind of written some personal things in, um, in my log and she was, she was great. And, um, it's funny. I actually coach her now, which is funny. Um, her name is Audrey. And so, uh, yeah, I asked for her log and she's like, yeah, that's fine. I don't care. You can look at it. And so, um, and just kind of looked at like what they were doing and how different it was, um, compared to us and, but how similar it was in other ways. And so that was something that was definitely just, um, yeah, something that really kind of like planted the, planted the seed for, if you will. Let's fast forward to the end of your time at Georgetown. You mentioned earlier in this conversation how you were fifth at NCAAs in cross country, which which is remarkable. I mean, the NCAA cross country meet, it's, it's one of the most competitive races in the world. It brings people together from all these different backgrounds and, and disciplines and just kind of like throws them on the same course and lets them have at it. And, and typically, I mean, that is... I don't want to say a, an, an indicator of future success, maybe of, of future potential as a competitive runner, but how are you thinking about things post Georgetown? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously I had the success, but I, 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 then I struggled on the track still. And that's something that I, I always, I never kind of got quite right. And so that was something that I, um, like I, I never scored, <laughs> scored points in, uh, or like was top 10 at, uh, NCA cross, but I was never top 10 or scored any points at, um, at, uh, at the NCA like track and field meets. And so that was something that like I was, I was looking to do for sure. And, um, never, never actually ended up having a ton of success, um, from like a championship racing standpoint, I ran kind of fast in the 10, um, which was fun. But, um, yeah, it was definitely something that like, especially after I had done well in cross country especially at Georgetown, I was definitely like, I'm ready to like, I want to rip, uh, uh, track and field and, um, just like had, had glimpses of success there, but never what I fully wanted to accomplish there for sure. Were you looking at running professionally? Did you have any options or were you just going to take it like a month or a year at a time and try to figure out where you were going to go? Yeah, I was definitely somebody who like as soon as I got had that fifth place result, I was like, all right, well, seeing who's done this in the past, then I've like I'm in the position where I will like most likely probably get recruited again. But I was still like it was still kind of early on in my college career, if you will. And so I was like, I still need to prove myself. And the next season didn't go so well. Like I ended up getting injured again. And so I got back into that injury cycle. And um, that was something that was um, definitely I knew as a detriment um, for me being recruited at the end of the day. And so, um, yeah, it was it was something that like I definitely wanted to run professionally, but I didn't know if that was definitely going to be um, a possibility. Um, and so especially with a lot of uh, professional teams look to how well you run on on the track and because that's I mean, that's where world mm-hmm. champs are for the big, like the big world champs. I would say cross country is obviously there's a world champs, but, um, I, I think people would say it's, uh, track world champs are, are a bigger event. Um, same thing with the Olympics. There's no cross country in the Olympics. And, um, yeah. And track and field, I mean, you can also just look at the times and compare them across the board and be like, well, you know, you've either run like 13 teens or you haven't. Uh, and if you haven't, you can't be competitive at this level. And, you know, if you have, we'd like 
to have you and that sort of thing. And, and I think that's unfortunate. I mean, I'm a, I'm definitely a, a cross country guy myself first and foremost, but I mean, the reality of, of professional running is it's pretty black and white in terms of the time and whether or not a company is going to offer you a contract. Yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, like it is a business 100%. And so, um, yeah, if you're not, um, <laughs> if you're not, uh, if you're not performing, then, um, there's not necessarily a reason for them to keep you around at the end of the day. So, how did you end up with the Saucony Freedom Track Club, which was based in Boston, not too far from where you grew up? Yeah, um, I was I was offered contracts b- between um, the BAA, which is the Boston Athletic Association, mm-hmm. who puts on the, the Boston Marathon, um, and then uh, Saucony. And so those were kind of the two teams. I talked to Ben Rosario at NAZ for a period of time, um, but that kind of fell away a little bit, and so eventually kind of decided on those two and um got offers from them and stockany was just seemed like the better option um for the most part it just seemed like um i wanted i i like the idea of being sponsored by a uh like a company versus like a, a non-profit organization that has um way of, like a ton of other things on their plate um for the most part and so um that's kind of um how i ended up uh on the team and um yeah how long were you with that group? Um, I was there for just over a year. Um, so I joined in like August of, would that be 2018? And then left like probably November-ish, October-ish of, uh, of 2019. And that's where you and Molly Seidel connected as teammates initially. Yeah, exactly. And so that was, Molly and I had like, I, there was that there was a Georgetown Notre Dame connection there where um, we were out in Flagstaff. A group of us were out in Flagstaff one summer, and Molly wasn't there, but her almost her entire rest of her team was there, and so we got to hang out with them and run with them a ton. And um, one of my best friends, um, Peter Monahan, who went to St. John's, ran for St. John's, ended up running for Notre Dame, and um, so it was just one of those things where we had that close connection. We got a fifth year transfer from Notre Dame, and we sent a fifth year transfer to Notre Dame, and it was like so there'd been that like we had definitely known of each other and but never actually like formally met each other so um yeah when i got onto the team we both knew of each other but um that was the first time we kind of got to talking and like um yeah and becoming friends what was your time like at the freedom track club it was it was a good time it was i learned a lot during that time to be honest with you that's probably in my running career that's probably the time that i've i've learned the most um through hard lessons, through easy lessons, through good, through bad, it was um, it was it was definitely uh, it was a very different situation than what I experienced at Georgetown, and so um, that was it was something that like yeah I wouldn't I, I don't really have regrets ever for the most part, and so um, that was something that was like yeah I definitely didn't have a regret about it. I'm very happy that I, I joined that team. Let's go through some of those learnings. What were some of the hardest lessons that you experienced and learned during that time? Yeah, it, it was like the hardest lessons was I, I got into a really bad injury cycle. And so um, I, I basically found, and the reason why I ended up leaving in the end was 
I didn't feel the training was uh, the training that worked best for me. It was it was a lot higher intensity, um, and so it was. It, this was this is kind of going back to I had always thought like, oh, more is better. It's always better to be doing the hardest workouts you can. I've never puked after a workout, so I was like, I wanted to do that and stuff like that. But then I found my body couldn't keep up with that kind of workout, and so that was where I like I tried to and I wanted to be there, but I I, I just couldn't. The workouts were like too difficult for my body, and I ended up getting an injury cycle because of it so that was something where um like it's it's one of those things where the grass isn't always greener um so what was working for me was working why why fix it or i tried changing it and so that was something that like that was the lesson i learned during that was like that kind of training just doesn't work for me and um yeah obviously the team had a ton of success with people who like brian schrader helen schlachtenhoffen or james rand and there's a ton of people on that team who had a ton of success and um still have success um on that team now when you left how are you thinking about your own running career were you looking for other avenues to continue it or were you thinking about hanging it up as a competitive athlete yeah. So I, I tried running. Uh, so I wasn't, I got dropped by Saucony in February, uh, actually the week, the like Monday before the, um, <laughs> the Olympic trials marathon actually. And so I tried running, um, like on my own, I tried self coaching and that wasn't like, that's a really dangerous situation. Um, I, I basically couldn't, uh, like, I had people to reach out to, but I didn't feel comfortable. I didn't know like how to, like I was still learning a lot about myself at that point. And so that was something where, um, it just was kind of, it was a little bit of a disaster where I'd, I'd go out, set these times for workouts. Cause I should be, I thought I should be there, but then I would miss the times, get super discouraged or like r- I raced really poorly. I, I ran some really bad times during that time period. And that's also like super discouraging. And so that was another like learning time for me where I was, I was running really badly. And so, um, yeah. Were you just generally feeling a little lost at that point of your life? Yeah, definitely a little bit. It was, it was trying to figure out like where running like fits into things and I was starting to feel pretty burnt out. And so eventually when I I did get dropped, I ended up basically being like, I try, I was like, you know what, maybe I'll try for it. And I was like, I kind of came to the realization. I was like, I'm struggling to just get out the door right now. Um, where I was able to, because there was like money being put my way where I was like, I need to do this because it's my job. But in the same aspect, I felt like I hadn't taken a break in a really long time. And so I didn't have that, like, I needed that mental, like, decompression that I, I hadn't had in a while. And so, um, which I'm still, like, I'm still going through that decompression, I feel like, a little bit, where I, I do go out for runs and I enjoy them a lot more now. But um, during that time period, yeah, I definitely don't want to, like, start training heavy by any means uh, yet. So, <laughs> At that time, were the wheels turning for you in terms of pursuing other professional opportunities? Oh yeah. I applied to a ton of jobs once I got, um, so I like, I applied to a ton of jobs once I got dropped by Saucony, um, especially that week leading into the the trials. I like, I applied to a lot. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I remember, I remember applying to a job that was actually like, it, it's like, it seemed really cool, a really interesting job and, um, like something that I, I would enjoy still like, obviously coaching is going great. So I'm not, I'm not looking for any jobs right now, but, um, yeah, it was a it was a job at Dana Farber for like help organizing races and put together races with elite fields as well. And so I remember seeing that job and I was like, that job seems really cool. And it was like working for Dana Farber, which is 
excellent organization, of course. And so um, that was one job that, yeah. So I definitely applying to different jobs during that time period. Um, but in coaching, I was coaching Molly at that time. I'd started coaching her in like late August, early September um, of uh, 2019. And so um, I was coaching at that time period, but, and like really enjoying it, but didn't like, didn't know where to go with it. And like the, I feel like applying for collegiate jobs doesn't really like start until like later spring. Um, Cause that's, I feel like where the, <laughs> the, the switch happens um, for different schools and stuff. So yeah, it was, it was kind of just looking at anything um, and trying to try to get a paycheck at that point. So. We've gone over an hour at this point without talking about your coaching relationship with Molly Seidel. You just mentioned it in passing right there, but give us the full story. How did that conversation start? You were both teammates on the Saucony Freedom Track Club. You had left. I don't know if she left before or after you, but kind of take me take me through what those interactions and conversations were like. Yeah, I mean, Molly and I were very good friends on the team. And um, so she ended up leaving before I left. Um, and so I, I started coaching her just as like, hey, listen, like I'm, I'm happy to just um, like lend a hand if that means holding a stopwatch and be like helping somebody be accountable at the track or whether that's writing training. And she was like, yeah, I could kind of use somebody to write training right now. And I'm not totally sure what I'm doing. And she, I basically was like, I was like, okay, yeah, like if you want me to, I will. We can just like, I, to be honest with you, I try still to this day not to have an ego around coaching or um, anything like that. And so I was like, hey, listen, like if it's, if it's something that's not working for you and like you're not liking the training that I'm writing, then like that's totally fine. Like just let me know. And like there's no no harm, no foul there. Like I understand that like especially kind of what I had gone through was like not everybody's training is like what works well for people. And so, um, yeah, it was just one of those things. I was like, okay, that's totally fine. And it eventually we started working for like six weeks or something at the time. And, um, she actually had gone to Ethiopia like shortly after that, um, to do, it was girls on the run, I believe is the nonprofit mm -hmm. she works with. And so, um, she had gone to Ethiopia and just started training with them and <laughs> getting destroyed by a bunch of like middle schoolers or high schoolers. So, um, that was obviously good for her. And then we came back and she went out to Flagstaff. And so I was writing training with her for her then like full time. And, um, basically with the goal towards, um, making the 10,000 meter team in the track on the track trials, um, in 2020 and using the, we were originally planning on doing the Houston marathon, but because it was only eight weeks before the Olympic trials marathon, we decided to switch and do um, the half there instead. And then uh, basically use that as like, yeah, why not do the Olympic trials? You know, they only comes around every like four years, you know, and it's something, it's a really special event. Um, I'm sure as anybody can talk about as who have competed in it. And so um, that was something that we just basically used as uh, we were using as a stepping stone and just trying to build consistency since she had had a bunch of injury issues previously. And so, um, yeah, and that's kind of how we started working together and she had been consistent, pretty injury free doing races, not having any issues. And then, um, obviously for, for those don't, who don't know, yeah, she made the team. And so that was kind of like a, okay, this is, this is, this is sweet, you know, and it was a really exciting day for sure. When you started writing her training 
initially. What did that look like for you? I mean, you had been teammates, you had a pretty good idea of what she had been doing for training because you were on the same team. But did you ask for her old logs and kind of start digging through things to see like what worked and what didn't? Did you guys just have conversations about her training so you could have a better idea of where she was coming from? Or did you just throw some shit down on paper and say, (laughs) hey, we're going to try this and see how it works out? Yeah. So, I mean, we, I remember, so at that time I, I had started working at my uh, parents, I was working on a on at, at my parents' hardware store, Green's Hardware, check it out, uh, in Wellesley, Mass. And so uh, she ended up meeting me. We went for a run early on and that like earlier, and then we um, went and grabbed coffee and we sat down at a local coffee shop and basically just hashed things out for like, I think we were there for like two, two and a half hours essentially. And just like, talking about what worked, what didn't work, uh, like some issues she's had, like we talked about like mental health. We talked about like, um, like different places she likes to train. We talked about everything we talked about. She brought her old logs. We looked at her old logs from when she was, um, being coached, uh, under like the Stockney freedom track club team. We talked about logs from, um, when she was back in college with her coach, Matt Sparks. Um, yes, we, we covered like everything i feel like um and so we just deep dove into it and basically what i did was i like i had again kind of known what had worked for me really well um because i would write i started like from the beginning like i wrote my summer training essentially um and bonzi kind of like approved it um because it was pretty much spot in line with what he would give i'm guessing and so um basically because of that so that's kind of what i started so i had i had a a good understanding of like what I knew worked for me at least. And so I was like, well, let's see if it works for her. I think it should based off of the conversations. I was like, Oh, we aligned perfectly on like, yes, I agree fully with what your training is here. Like, like I would want to do that training too. And so that's kind of how it started. And then when we started getting into more marathon specific things, like that's when, I, or like when we decided to go into the marathon, I was like, all right, this is when like I started reading a ton and just like I read inside a marathon that Ben Rosario and Scott Pobble wrote um, and like took, I took ideas from that. I like looked at PowerPoints and stuff like that, that um, the USA like coaching association um, they had posted on their website, USATF had posted stuff. And I just started reading a ton and then basically like reached out to Mike Smith and was like, Hey, listen, um, like, you've, you've coached marathons. You've had this understanding of it more so than, um, Bonzi had some understanding of it, but he was more like, you should talk to Mike about this. Um, and so that's kind of where I went and, um, I had a good long conversation with Mike and being like, again, this was the the questioning and asking like, Hey, listen, like I saw like Ben did this or somebody else did this. Like what, what's the reasoning behind this? Or like I saw while I was at Saucony, um, like, uh, uh, Brian Schrader was doing more like higher intensity stuff. Like what's like, what's the reasoning for that? What's your understanding of this? And like, like I was like, and basically we just teased out ideas. And so he was super helpful towards like getting the uh, understanding of like why, how he approaches marathon training and how like, which then like, obviously he's a successful coach and I trusted him completely. And so I was like, okay, I understand where you're coming from. And so, and he was like, yeah, you have some good points to hear. And like, these are some things I might eliminate from it. And yeah, kind of, uh, yeah. And that's how we've kind of gone. And yeah, it was (laughs) a lot of learning, trying to be a sponge, still trying to be a sponge. Prior to writing out Molly's initial schedules, had you written training for anyone before aside from yourself? 
No, not at all. Um, so yeah, I just took like, basically I would like the training that I would write, like Bonzi, like I said, was coaching me all through college. And so I'd kind of be like, Hey, listen, I'd want to do like three, these three workouts or four workouts before I get to the school. And you'd be like, yeah, that seems fine to me. That's, that's fine. In, in reality, like I thought I had so much power. And then in reality, Bonzi's like, all right, it makes my life a little bit easier. And the workouts probably don't really matter that much at the end, you know? And so that's kind of, that's the only training I had like worked on basically. When you started working with Molly, I mean, she was your your only athlete at the time, your only athlete for a little while, as, as far as I understand it. Did something click for you where you were like, yeah, this is this is what I want to be doing? I've kind of stumbled into it. I don't really know what I'm doing because I don't have a lot of experience, but this like feels right to me. This feels like what I was meant to do. Uh, yeah, a little bit. It was definitely more so a uh, – like. I was doing this for a friend. I was helping a friend out. Like Mm -hmm. I, like we were just trying to like, just try to be healthy and just, I was just trying to help a friend at the end of the day, I think. And, um, obviously I had, like, I didn't really know it worked until I, like she, she got, um, she qualified for the Olympics, you know? And so that was something that was like, that was kind of the validation that I, I needed a bit. Like, obviously she had run fast at, um, in Houston and, um, another half marathon before that as well. And, but it was like, all right, what does it really, what does it really mean? Um, that was kind of the, the time of like the new, like carbon shoes were just kind of starting to come out a little bit as well. And so I was like, all right, is this just like, because Molly's stepping into these longer distances and having success and like, this is just normal or is it like, are we competing with like good people? And so that's kind of when, when she raced that, um, the marathon for the first time, that was something that was like, okay, you know, we are like, something's working clearly, you know? (laughs) Did you feel any initial pressure to not screw it up? Uh, And I don't mean that in terms of, you know, oh, if she doesn't make the Olympic team, it's a failure. I mean, I don't even know if that was on the radar in some of the initial conversations, but just like to not get her injured or, or burned out or just like in a place where, you know, running didn't fit well into her life. Yeah, I think... I think, yeah, the number one like concern there was just getting her healthy. That was something we were, she had not, she hadn't been healthy in a very long time, I think. And so that was just our number one concern there for me at least. And so, and then from there, I think like Molly was able to be super open and honest and just candid with like how she was feeling on certain days and stuff like that. And just like, I like, I was helping a friend out, so I'm not going to get mad at her. I still don't get mad at her now or any of my athletes. Like that's, it's like, I don't do well. I, I'm not like, I'm not a yeller or anything like that, I feel like. And so, um, that was just kind of how it worked was just like, I was helping a friend, like as we got closer to the marathon, it was like, I looked at the people in the field and I looked at where I thought Molly was. And I was like, yeah, I think, I think you have a shot. I think you'd be anywhere from like third to like 15th, I think and on the day. And obviously she was, um, a little bit better than that, which was great. And so, yeah, it was just more of so on the day. It was just being like, Hey, listen, like, like obviously wanted her to succeed, but didn't have any like real expectations of where that would lead at the end of the day. When did the marathon conversations start? You mentioned how initially it was going to be geared toward the 10 K trials, which would have been summer of, of last year um, before the the pandemic hit. Um, But ultimately Molly ended up running half marathon. You said, you said that you thought she might debut at Houston. Then you said, well, well, what the heck? Let's just go for the trials. It's like a month 
month later and you know she could potentially you know make the team I, i'd love to understand like how far out from that race at the end of february 2020 did you guys start aiming toward it um i mean we like we were planning on doing it so it was like it was a marathon build if you will like it was more mm-hmm. like it was a it was a probably the longest marathon build of ever but i felt like um i, I just felt like it was the goal was just to do slower stuff because that we knew kind of in previous history of her like training that that didn't get her injured. And so that was kind of the reason it was like, all right, if we're doing slower, longer stuff and you're not going to get injured, you're doing mileage that doesn't really injure you ever. Like then we should be, I'm going to knock on wood there. Um, (laughs) uh, Then that should like, that should give us a like consistent base, which then like gives us like a greater aerobic capacity to then be there hopefully later in the trials. And then we'll work on speed at the end, right. For the 10 K. And so, um, and that's kind of how we, yeah, like approached it and went into it. And so like, we were obviously until she got it, she didn't have a qualifying time. So she did that first half and got a qualifying time. And so that's when she was like, Oh, like, maybe uh like maybe yeah maybe i'll do houston half or maybe i'll do the houston full and then this idea of doing both the houston full and the trials came up and i felt like my coach brandon bonzi when i proposed the idea of doing both the five and ten at mount sack and i was like absolutely not we're not doing that (laughs) i don't know that much about coaching but i do know that's a bad idea (laughs) so it was it was it was funny yeah at what point did you realize, just looking at, at Molly and the strengths that she brought to the table and what she really thrived off of in training, that she could be or had the potential to be a great marathoner? Because we, you know, you knew at that point. I mean, she was a great cross country runner. Um, she had a lot of success in high school, in college. She'd run pretty fast on the track. But I mean, she's already shown in, in three marathons. Like, all right, that's where she's going to probably make her biggest mark. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we did kind of stumble into it. And obviously, like, we, I, it goes without saying, but I think just to emphasize the point here is is Molly is just an unreal talent. You know, um, she won Foot Locker. She won NCAA titles. Like, she's she's had, like, some, she's had some periods of injury, obviously. But, um, like, yeah, she's just an unbelievable talent at the end of the day. And so, um, and just like an aerobic monster. And so like it kind of goes to show that like, yeah, you can, you can have success. Like the marathon isn't like just somebody like, I think Ben Rosario first said this, or this is where I got it from at least was that basically like, you don't need to um, like be old to do the marathon. You can step into it and then step out of it. Like if you wanted, like if Molly was like, Hey, listen, I want to try to go for the, the 10,000 meter team for world champs. Like I'd fully, I think that'd be like a fine idea. You know what I mean? That's not an idea that I would shut down. Not that, we haven't had that conversation yet, but like, um, yeah, it's just something that like, if, if she wanted to do something like that, that's totally fine. Or if she wanted to go out, run a fast 10 or a fast five. Like I still think people can dabble in like these different distances and whatnot. And, um, obviously she's had the most success in, um, in the marathon thus far, but, um, Molly, Molly loves to do like we, one thing we have talked about is possibly doing, trying to go for the, um, world champs cross country team. Um, because that's something she really wants to do. So that's a really fun, like fun event. And, uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I don't think, yeah, obviously she's had the most success in the marathon, but at the end of the day, like, like 
I'm not going to limit Molly. And I think Molly's definitely open to different ideas. I don't think she'll probably step down to like the 15 by any means. <laughs> maybe as a joke, maybe a beer mile. I could see her definitely doing a beer mile, but uh, I don't think, uh, I think probably the five is probably one of the lower events she's going to go to for sure. <laughs> when you were educating yourself about marathon training, not having had any experience racing a marathon, you still haven't, you hadn't coached anyone else for a marathon. You mentioned how, you spoke with Mike Smith and picked his brain a little bit. You picked up inside a marathon, learned what you could from Ben Rosario and Scott Fobble and their New York City Marathon buildup. You watched some of the USATF educational pieces online. Like, What were some of the biggest things that you learned as you were exploring this type of training that you had never personally experienced yourself as an athlete or coach? I think the biggest thing I learned was more of the science behind it. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I knew what... like. I knew what I think worked, right? But I didn't know like necessarily like the numbers behind it, if that makes sense. Um, like percentage heart rate, things like that. I didn't know. And so that was the biggest, like that was kind of what I was learning the most about. Or um, like li- I listened to a bunch of podcasts as well and listening to um, like uh, Becoming a, a Supple Leopard, I think is the name of it, um, is the book. Kelly Surratt, yeah. Yeah, and so I read that book. I don't it might have even been Mike talking about that on this podcast. I forget what he I remember it came from him mentioning it and Ben mentioning it, I think too possibly. Like and so mm-hmm. that was just like hearing like anytime people like mentioned a name of a book, I was like, All right, I'm 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 getting that. You know what I mean? That, and then yeah. like or like people mentioning a resource, I was like, All right, I'm I'm checking that out. Like or listening to like Marisha Powell um talk about like her tra- like that it was just kind of like, yeah, it was all coming in. It was more like the USATF stuff and the US uh, like coaching association things. Those all brought more of a scientific basis to it and understanding from it. Same thing with uh, like Stephen Magnus is obviously super. I haven't met him yet, but I'd really like to meet him one day. He's somebody who's super um, like scientific based on things. And so it's understanding that as, as well as like at the end of the day, I, I do try to take like um, and one thing kind of Mike like instilled in me and experience at Georgetown was like, like empathy at the end of the day and making sure that you're kind of putting yourself in these athlete shoes and understanding, um, what, it, what it's like to be them. And so early on it was easy because I was like essentially giving Molly the same treatment I was getting and stuff like that. And so, um, yeah, it was just kind of like, it's just like a learn. It was, a, it was a learning curve and just trying to pick up as much knowledge as I possibly can. And to this day, I'm still trying to do that. I've, I've exhausted a lot of the resources I feel like. And so now I'm like, it's, uh, I'm still trying to pick though, but anytime somebody's starting to co- talk about coaching or anything like we were in, uh, when we were up in Tokyo, um, a bunch of the coaches were in the same hotel and I was just trying to listen and understand like how they approach it and stuff like that. Even like I overheard, uh, a couple throwing coaches talking about their training and whatnot, um, which obviously doesn't really apply to me at all, but like, it was just really interesting to learn because I don't understand that, that side of it at all. I don't understand sprint training that much or, um, or, or throwing on the field side of things, I guess. And so, um, yeah, it's just trying to, just trying to learn and it's a really interesting sport. And so, yeah. At this point, now that you're a bit deeper into it, which we'll discuss here in a minute, do you set aside specific amounts of time during the week to educate yourself, whether it's picking up books, picking up the phone to call someone, watch something on YouTube and roll in a course, whatever it may be? Yeah, I do. I just try to like, I guess I don't set time like, 
side specifically. I'm not like from nine to 10 AM I'm doing this, um, sure. which probably for my schedule would probably be easier, but, um, <laughs> especially for my sleep schedule. Um, because uh, that's kind of when I start, like I'll, I'll start looking at it in the evening at times and then just be like, and then you can like, especially if you can get into like a deep dive where you're like finding yourself in a wormhole of like, okay, now I have 42 tabs opened up of all different types of like PowerPoints yeah. and I'm like, okay, now I got to get through this, but I also got to take notes during it. And so like, yeah, that's kind of like, that's kind of, yeah, I, I definitely, it, it's not like I set time aside, but I'm definitely still doing it. Yeah. <laughs> what do you see as the chief role of a coach? Uh, that's a hard question. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's a balance between like, it's like being a friend and being a mentor, I guess, or like, yeah, it's a hard, it's a hard, like, like line to walk where like, if it's just like, there's times where like, for example, with Molly of like wanting to do that back to back marathons, like that would have been a terrible idea, you know? And so there's that time where I stepped in, I'm like, Hey, listen, like, we really should not do this. Um, but then there's also times where like, like I, I try to phrase things in terms of like consequences of things like, Hey, listen, like if we do this, like this is what might happen, you know? And it, it's, it's kind of, and that's kind of what I experienced with talking with coach Hanner, coach Bonzi was like, and Georgetown was like, Hey, listen, like if we do this, you might get injured or like, this isn't the right call. And so it's that kind of like, formulating and trying to like steer an athlete towards what I think is best. But at the end of the day, like if an athlete's super passionate and be like, I need to do this, then it's like, is like, I try not to say no for the most part, but like there's lessons to be learned sometimes, you know what I mean? And so that was something that I experienced in high school of like, no, I shouldn't have been running that dual meet. And I didn't understand it until a few months later. And so I luckily didn't run that dual meet, but, um, yeah, it's some lessons need to be learned, um, over time. And that also kind of pushes me to be a, a different, like be open to new ideas as well. I'm always interested in like hearing what an athlete has to say about like how they're feeling and stuff like that. And like, Oh, like, I feel like I'm just not strong enough. Okay. Like let's implant more like, um, less strength stuff and things like that. And, um, that's that's something that I think some coaches struggle to do is um, like understand from their athlete like their like how they're feeling and what they're feeling. They feel like oh I know everything and not I know everything, but like I know a lot about this and I know what's best for the athlete. But at the end of the day, like I I'm never gonna know an athlete's like how an athlete's feeling or how like the athlete's body as well as they know it. Right. And so like I'm always gonna try to take cues and understand. And there's some athletes out there that obviously are like. You know, I, uh, like they'll, they'll tell me like their Achilles is hurting right away. And so there's certain athletes out there like, okay, if they tell me their Achilles is hurting. It's something we're kind of noting, but it might be just sore for that one day. And then it's fine. Versus somebody like Molly telling me her Achilles hurts. Like we are like, we need to stop running <laughs> like that. And so it's like, it's finding that, um, that balance and understanding, uh, each individual athlete at the end of the day. Let's talk about the trials in Atlanta. You mentioned how you told Molly that on a great day, she could be third good day. Maybe she's somewhere in the teens. Take me through that day. What was it like for you? Um, yeah, it, that was, it was a wild day. So I was, so I had just lost my contract. And so it was like, I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing with my life. <laughs> it was like one of those things I was like, I like everything I had been doing previously to that had been attached to, um, 
to 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 running professionally basically and so or running trying to run professionally at least and so i i didn't tell molly before the race specifically because i thought it would stress her out it didn't which was good and so um yeah and, and just so i woke up like i couldn't sleep the night before i didn't know how like the results were going to be and so i was way more stressed about like am i doing this thing right or did i just screw up this whole thing completely um like the taper was something that i like stresses stresses me out the most still to this day and so um yeah so that was something that i was worried about like oh did we mess up the taper is she gonna feel flat whatnot so i woke up at like 3 30 in the morning as soon as it was first light i had rented this bike off this guy off a of craigslist who he was selling the bike and i just messaged him like hey dude i'll give you like 30 bucks if you let me borrow it and um so i took that bike out and biked the course and just kind of saw it and then um yeah the race was like pretty early yeah it was was it yeah i think it was an early race right no it was later i think it was a little bit later it was later that's what it was because i remember being like damn i really wish this was like a 7 a.m start (laughs) that would have been great for my like mental state at least um and so and then yeah and then it was just kind of being out on the course like once she was running like it was being stressed but like i'd see her every like few miles and um yeah i was just kind of like found a, a rhythm that worked of like I'd watch her bike kind of not beside her, but like bike up every like 800 meters at one point and then bike every 800 meters back and then go into a bar and kind of watch it on the TV. And yeah, so it was just like, and then once she crossed the finish line, it was like my number one concern was obviously like I saw Molly, but I didn't have a coaching credential. So I like couldn't get into like the media area or anything like that and because I wasn't certified for USATF yet. And so um then it was like getting all of her friends and her family that were down there into the like corral area and we're passing back the like the the credential that gets like family and friends in so we had like 15 of us in there and it was was rotating credential (laughs) yeah yeah the the the, the, yeah the pass back of the credential (laughs) so at what point of the at what point of the race did you feel confident that she was going to make the team or maybe if you didn't feel confident that you had the thought like oh my god she might actually do this um it was kind of like one of the last laps where i was just like well she's still there and so i just remember yelling to her like this was when they went out and back on the course at one point like the super long out and back on the course and I just remember being like, hey, listen, like the break is going to happen. Like there's not much time left in the race at this point. Like it's going to happen soon. And it happened maybe like it probably happened like three to four minutes after that. And like there had been some really good women dropped at that point. And so it was like, okay, like she's up there. And then I remember like biking down on a side street and then catching back up and seeing that it was her and Alephine kind of breaking away and there's gaps. And I was like, holy holy shit like this is this is wild and so then i like i biked for like i cut off a big uh, portion of the course and um got to see her like at the last water stop where there wasn't a ton of people out there which was nice and so i was able to like just yell to her and kind of let her know how far back sally was at that point and like how far ahead like alephine was and yeah it was just and then it was just trying to get back to the finish line it was just it was wild <laughs> when you finally got to see her in the friends and family area at the finish line after the race after she had made the team what was that interaction like with her i just gave her like a huge hug it was it was it was really special yeah it was it was really cool um yeah it's just like it almost didn't hit for the most part like it was just like Mm -hmm. obviously she just made the olympic team but yeah it was just kind of like 
yeah it was just kind of it's why it's very hard like to describe to be honest with you yeah I mean, making the Olympic team for an athlete is is obviously a, a life changing type of thing. You just mentioned how, in your case, I mean, you're an uncertified coach of of one athlete. Um, you had just lost your own contract as a professional runner. You mentioned how, you know, you're like, what am I like? What am I going to do with my life after Molly made the team? Did things become a little bit more? clear for you did other opportunities open up or were you still in a situation where you were trying to figure out like what you were going to do aside from helping her get ready for the next thing yeah i mean it was um like it was like oh yeah like well this coaching thing like i just had a, an, a my first athlete that i've coached make the olympic team so that like there's that big like like thing to put on the resume but uh, like at the end of the day, it wasn't like people were knocking on my door. Like, Hey, you should like, <laughs> you should come coach like this NCA team or anything like that. You know what I mean? It wasn't like all of a sudden, like these like sustainable options kind of came into to view, if you will. And so I was still like, mm-hmm. I was still applying to like normal jobs and stuff like that. And I'm still working at the hardware store, like full time at that point. And so, yeah, it was just one of those things where like, it, it like it obviously like coaching was I really enjoyed coaching, but I still didn't know if that was a possibility. And I applied to a few collegiate jobs, and I, I didn't even get a call back. And so it was like I was like, damn, this is like it's it's hard to get into the industry. It's, it's very hard, and you have to put in your time and stuff like that. And I definitely like jumped jumped the line a little bit with that with Molly, um, like making that team and like checking that kind of box as uh, coaches do of like having a, an athlete make the Olympic team, but um, I was still kind of starting at square one of like, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, the first like coaching job I kind of envisioned after a few weeks of that was like, yeah, it's probably, it's just going to be the like basic assistant position. You know, I even applied to like on like unpaid positions. Cause I was just like, I wanted to get time. I wanted to do it. But then shortly after that, like COVID hit. And so that was like, then it was like, all right, well, <laughs> nobody in their like right mind would generally leave a team now because who doesn't have like a super stable position or a super established position because like, you don't know if you're going to get hired back. You know what I mean? You know what's going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. these teams like we're getting um, like the Brown team or the Clemson team were getting shut down because of funding and stuff like that. So that was something that was like, yeah, it was definitely, um, it was, it was an unsure time of where my career was going to go at the end of the day. So COVID hits like pretty much right after the Olympic trials marathon. It wasn't for a few more months that we learned the games were going to be postponed till 2021. What were some of those conversations like with Molly um, amongst the uncertainty of, of COVID? And then once there was a little bit more certainty that, hey, at least the Olympics aren't going to be for another year. How were you thinking about her training at that time and what you wanted to focus on and what you were going to do to to keep her going until the Olympics finally came? Yeah, I mean, at that point, it was one of those, like, when, like, the silver lining in COVID for us was definitely, like, the Olympics getting um it gave molly a full year basically of training which was um which was excellent and just like invaluable towards her success um and in at the olympics and so with that it was um i i I, like i had no like i had just started stepping into this coaching world and all of a sudden i i felt like i was at one point i i was like well i am at least in an even playing field here where like nobody else has ever dealt with this either like you know a full like 
there's no races for the most part ever. And like, we don't know how to like train at all. Like, what, what do you do? Do you like, do you still like, do you go through a build cycle or do you just go like straight into uh, like, just like easy, like mileage. And so that was something difficult that we kind of dealt with. And I just, at the end of the day, I talked with Molly and be like, Hey, what, how do you want to approach this? And so, uh, she was like, you know what, like, let's set up and let's see if we can do a 10 K sometime this summer and like try to set up for that. And so that's what we did. And I ended up putting uh, a race together, uh, like a 10 K together on St. John's track, which was, I remember that, yeah, which is pretty cool. It was kind of like a wild, like feeling, but, um, yeah. And so that was something that was really cool. And she ended up DNFing because she like tore her rotator cuff or something pretty bad um, with a collision with a dog the day before. And so she ended up not being able to finish, but that was kind of like, it was fine. We got a build in and then we kind of like, we're looking towards fall marathons and she was lucky to be able to be a part of, um, of the London marathon, which was again, like she, I mean, she got to race another marathon, which like would never have happened if the Olympics right. had happened on the prior schedule. Did you change anything in terms of her training in the build up to London, or was it one of those situations where you're like, okay, well, we kind of hit things right the first time. We know sort of what works for her at this point, what keeps her healthy, what keeps her happy. We're just going to do more of that and hope that with the experience that she gained in Atlanta and the fitness that she's built from being healthy for such a long period of time that it will go well. Yeah. I mean, so we like the build leading into Atlanta was not perfect by any extent of the imagination. Like I think she was hitting every like second or third workout. And so that was something where it was definitely like, all right, we like, we have room to grow, which is like, at the end of the day, that's the the best thing that athlete could have. Mm -hmm. I mean, is like, Obviously, Molly is like still young in her career and um, yeah, looking forward to like the future. And so we were just trying to like get more consistent training essentially. And so um, like I learned, we learned like kind of what her burnout like period was. And so leading into that 10K was she felt started feeling like pretty bad. Like, and I, I think she got a little burnt out from training and stuff like that. And her, her like we looked we got blood drawn and we looked at that and like she was very tired and so that was something that was like a huge learning um like event for me and so um yeah and so but it like what was great was that happened leading into some random 10k that i was putting together in central mass you know what i mean and so that was something that was again a great lesson that i had and then we led into uh london and that was a very short build like that was only eight weeks long i think um but it was a little bit more high intensity and so the previous build into atlanta was longer intense longer but lower intensity this was a little bit higher intensity a little bit shorter and so then we kind of combined the two leading into um leading into the olympics where we were a little bit higher intensity but uh a little bit um like it was a longer event as well so when you say higher intensity, do you mean just the speed of her workouts, more volume, more volume and, and more speed? Like help me to understand like what dials you turned there. So we worked on like bringing down her threshold pace um, mm -hmm. and like volume as well. So she was 
I, I don't remember it offhand, but it was probably like in the 530s, 535s was threshold, um, kind of leading into Atlanta. And then um, like basically afterwards, we kind of looked at what other people were doing and we're like, not other people like, and just being like, we're going to copy them, but we we're looking like, okay, we should probably try bringing down this threshold a little bit. So we did that. And then we started getting in this. So we started doing like single workouts a day, a week and doing just like, a little bit faster. So we brought it down to like five twenties, five twenty-fives. And so that was kind of a big step she took. And and then in this most recent build, what we did was we started doing double days. And so this is another thing where I took I talked to Mike about and it's it was definitely like a huge another huge step that she took where she was doing um like we'd go out and do like seven or eight by mile up in Flagstaff at like seventy two hundred feet. And then that evening we'd go down to Sedona to Sedona and do like four by mile. Um and all of it was at like five twenty pace. And so all off of like sixty seconds rest as well. And so it was just something that like there's that like increased volume on those days. And we also we play bumped up mileage a little bit, but you can always go higher with mileage, I feel like, but it's just a dangerous game to play at the end of the day. And right. so you try you try not to just like you try to find like mileage or like fitness in other places, if you will. And like we had so much room to grow in workouts and we still do. And so that's another place where we can do it. And um yeah. So like her like in this most recent build, we didn't do a ton of like longer, um, longer, like extended efforts, like 10 mile tempos or 13 miles at like marathon pace or anything like that. We did do them on occasion, but we didn't do them as much as we had done in London. And so that's another place where we can start adding those on into like the next build and stuff like that. And so that the goal is for Molly to have, or my goal for Molly at least is to have as long of a career as she wants in this sport, um, and have room to grow and, um, have success. I love that approach. And it really does sound like each cycle has built upon the one before it. And I mean, as you described earlier, you had, you know, kind of a, what for a lot of people is an unfortunate thing, but something go your way. And that's the Olympics being delayed a year, giving you like that, that huge block of time to really develop other areas of her fitness and another opportunity for her to gain experience as a marathon racer, which I, I have to imagine going into a race like, Sapporo, I mean, is, is just like incredibly invaluable. Yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah. I mean, we both learned just so much like from her racing to me coach, like we, and we just learned how to work well together, even, even more so than we were previously. And, um, that was just something that was just really, really exciting and like a fun, a really fun thing to like go through for sure. Do you view coaching as a collaborative effort? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, uh, I think if you don't take it as a collaborative effort, then it's like, it's, there's obviously athletes who don't like know as much about, um, like about their, what they're doing and stuff. They're just kind of like, yes, I'll do whatever you say kind of thing. And like, whatever you, if you give me 200s today, I'll do 200s. If you give me mile repeats, I'll do mile repeats, whatever it is. And that like, whatever mileage you tell me to run, I'll do it. Um, and so obviously they have workouts they like and they workouts they don't like, but, um, in that aspect, like my goal kind of with, with coaching people is to teach them and have them understand why we're doing what we're doing. So if I ever stop coaching them or like 
for whatever reason, we kind of part ways that they are able to basically coach themselves the same way I was coaching them previously. And um, my job, yeah, my job is to eliminate my own job, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I love hearing that. I mean, I've heard other coaches say that before too. Like if you can coach yourself out of a job, then you're doing it really well. And I mean, I've been coaching for a long time myself and I've, I've always said like, when I stop learning from my athletes, then I need to stop coaching. Um, and it, it's not a situation where, you know, I'm an all knowing person and they need to be, you know, just, just learning from me. I mean, I learn more from them on a, on a daily basis and that informs my perspective and the decisions that we make. And, and it empowers the athlete, quite frankly. And it feels more like a team effort rather than, oh, this guy's just telling me what to do. And if I, if I don't like it, I need to like keep my mouth shut or quit. Yeah. And like, I use the, like the we like i i always like for good or for bad like i always use we towards things because we are a team at the end of the day and so that's how i do it like like we're doing mile repeats today you know what i mean it's it's not a it's not a like you're doing mile repeats and that's how i view it and um yeah because at the end of the day like yeah i like for any athlete i coach they they should know or if they don't know already which hopefully they do is that like i have their back and um yeah i'm i'm here to support them and and like help them in whatever they want to do um with uh, with running and outside of running as well you know what i mean this this sport helps grow friendships and builds friendships and it's something that like friendships that last for a very long time you know Let's fast forward, and I don't want to skip over too much. We'll get back to a few things here in a minute. But I want to fast forward to Sapporo, which as of this conversation was just a few weeks ago. Now that you have had a little bit of time to to process that, we all know at this point, if you didn't know at this point, Molly Seidel is Spoiler. the Olympic bronze medalist <laughs> in the marathon. What are your afterthoughts at this point, a few weeks later, now that you've had some time to to process it and you know maybe absorb all of what happened. Yeah. I feel like I know Molly does it. We even joked about that the other day. Like we were looking at, uh, I forget what we were looking at, but yeah, basically it was, she was just like, I, we, she, because she was top 10 or yeah, because she was top 10 at the, um, at the Olympics, it like, it, it was like it, something she qualified for something or something like that. Or like it was, maybe it was tearing or something like that. I forget what it was. And, um, she was like, oh, well, like, I guess I'm not that tier. And I was like, no, we are, <laughs> you did it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so it's one of those things, like, it, I don't think it's set in for her yet. Uh, it definitely hasn't set in for me yet. Like, um, it was, yeah, it's like, what, like what gave me, like, what made me so happy on that day and like gave me tears that day was, was seeing how happy Molly was and seeing, yeah, just how happy, like, mm-hmm. like, the result was like, it, like at the end of the day, like, uh, like I'm a little cynical and stuff like that, where it's like, it's a sport. Like Molly and I joke about this too. It's like, she doesn't, she, she runs for a living. Like, you know what I mean? She, she runs circles for a living essentially. And so like, you know, it's, it, it is just a sport at the end of the day. And, um, the fact that we're able to like, yeah, worry about like <laughs> have our job being worrying about running is like, pretty good job you know and so like we have it pretty good and we're really lucky in that aspect and so yeah i don't know if it has set in yet i like maybe it will maybe it won't but yeah it is it is definitely something that's like very cool and like seeing the pre who the previous medalists are and whatnot is is definitely something that's um yeah it's definitely a very cool experience for sure 
Similar question to one that I asked you earlier. What was the day of the Olympic marathon itself like for you? Were you just as nervous as you were in Atlanta? Were you more nervous? Were you more confident? Like, take me, take me through that. I mean, you didn't have to hop on a bike to get around the course. I, at, at this point, you're credentialed and have a little bit more access than you did back when she qualified for the team. But kind of take me through all of that. Yeah. I mean, so I, I somehow woke up earlier than I did when I was in Atlanta. So I woke up probably at like one thirty ish. I just like never got on the sleep. Like I do not do time zones well, like going to Flagstaff messes me up and that's like three hours usually. Like it's so <laughs> going to Japan was just a whole nother roller coaster. And so I was up early and then, um, uh, basically made sure Molly was up. So I knocked on her door at like three and then tried like, see if anything she needs for me. If not, I went downstairs, grabbed some food real quick and, um, she started getting ready and I had some food, grabbed my backpack and went back to my room, grabbed my backpack. And then, um, we were kind of off. Um, and so we went through the security check that was required of like our bags and stuff like that, got on the bus. And then, um, we were at like the team area. And so, while we were there, we like, we're just hanging out and then buses, I think left at 5.00 AM. Um, and so we had to be, if we weren't allowed to just go onto the course, um, we weren't allowed to walk around the course for COVID reasons. And so, um, we all, all the like support staff that was at, um, in Japan or in Tokyo or in Sapporo with us who are all excellent, like Tyler Noble and like all of them actually were just super kick-ass and super great, awesome people and just super valuable. And like, made the metal possible at the end of the day, I feel like and possible. Like, and so, um, yeah. And so basically we were told that we have to basically, we could go to whatever water station we wanted to, but at the end, like we had to wait for the last runner to pass us in order to, um, before the buses would start taking us back to the like finish line area where the tents were. And so I was there. And so I just like, I popped up on my phone and like just watched the entire race since it was the 13 kilometer um, water station. And so I just, uh, yeah, I, I watched it on my phone. Molly was coming near. I got out, I like, got the water, handed it to her, and then like went back to watching on my phone and then watched her finish uh, like on the bus. They had it uh, thrown up there. And so that was, uh, it was really cool. It was a really fun experience. And then like probably 10 to 15 minutes after she got back, I, uh, um, like I got, I got to see her and like jumped uh, around a couple fences because <laughs> I wasn't credentialed to be in the media area and the mix zone. And so, and then got to like, yeah, again, give her like a big hug and just congratulate her, which was, which was really awesome. What roller coaster of emotions did you ride during the race itself? You know, it was just like, it, it was more just like not nervousness. It was just kind of paying attention to the race. And like, I mean, Molly has like uh, like a thing when she's racing. She kind of looks down to the left a little bit when it and like bobs her head when it like it seems like it's getting hard. But then that happens really early always, and so I was like, oh, damn, like she must be hurting now. And it's like I mean, we were down. It was like the second big loop, I think, at that point. So I was like, oh, well, it's getting hard, obviously. And so like, oh, like I guess like that's that's totally fine. Like she's still in a great position, and like obviously I'm, I'm going to be stoked with however she does. And so, um, but then it like, we just continued and like, she didn't, she started running up front a little bit, which that was one of the only things I told her was like, don't do that. But I also like Molly and I also know how to, how we work together is like, 
like she has the race intelligence to like know what's best for her at the end of the day. And so like she was getting pushed around a decent amount. And so like the best call for her to do to get out of the way was or like best call for her was to get out of the way. And so she went up to the front and um, wasn't pushing it or anything like that, but she was just trying to get away. And so like she didn't get tripped at a water station, which um, would have been would have like very like been very impactful in the race in a negative way. And so that was something that like obviously like just <laughs> like saw that and was like, okay, she's at the front, <laughs> you know? And um, yeah, it was just kind of watching it unfold, which was really cool. What was the race plan going in given the stakes, the conditions and just the quality of the field that she was running against? So I did the same thing. So for every race, what we do is generally we'll, uh, I, I create a Google like doc sheet and I put in all the racers in the race and I say, I look at all their PRs and see what they've done recently and whatnot. And, um, basically like I put them in a descending order list. I think in the descending order list of, uh, time, she was like, maybe it was like 20 something, like 22nd, 23rd, somewhere around there. Um, and so I basically, I sent her this and she's, she likes looking at data at times. And so, um, I sent her to her. I was like, Hey, just so you know, this is the field. Like, do it like do whatever you want with it and and we kind of sat down and started talking like a week out and i was like hey listen like looking at the field i think you could be anywhere from like fifth to like 20th basically and um somewhere in that range i think even if she was 30th on the day i think that would have been still a great race you know and um yeah it's just like molly is very good at competing at the end of the day and so like and that's where she thrives and so that was a, a good instance of it you know and she's she's out there and she's willing to to hurt a lot in order to accomplish her goals for sure another similar question what i asked you earlier what's the aftermath been like for you since the olympics i mean we're having this conversation now i've seen you interviewed in a few other places you have started did start will be starting a new coaching job here soon which we're going to talk about but did it open more doors for you or at least generate some more interest in terms of being kind of the the man behind the the madness here that is molly seidel uh yeah definitely did um so i had been working with the team previously to um to the olympic results uh yeah the the uh, to the finishing of the marathon i should say um and so yeah it was it was definitely something that like i i tend to hide in the background i i like to do that it's <laughs> um media can be fun it can also be stressful at times and so um i'm obviously super appreciative of any media opportunities that come my way and always willing to do it and um help out and whatnot and give my opinion on things if people want to hear it you know and um yeah, but at the end of the day, like, not much has changed. Same thing for Molly. Like, I feel like not much has changed. Like, <laughs> um, like we, we, she actually just flew out today. Um, she's going back to Wisconsin. She had an apartment that she had to pack up because she still had it in Boston. And so there is no better reality than having to pack up and move an apartment, you know? And so <laughs> that's a special layer of hell right there. And so, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't think much is like, much has changed obviously like molly has a ton of media appearances and i definitely couldn't do what she does i mean it's uh it's a lot of them for sure and so um which is really exciting and we're really excited to be in the position um that we're in for sure um and <laughs> definitely you know um enjoy it but it's it's definitely something that like 
Yeah. Uh, not much has changed for me. I'm still like, still, <laughs> they, my, like Molly and a bunch of my friends called me like the dad of the group, I guess, if you will. And so I'm still like, still doing my dad things, you know, still making dad jokes and stuff like that. <laughs> And, and you're not a dad and you're what, like 26 years old, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> Definitely not a dad, yes. <laughs> Talk to me about the group. You just sort of mentioned it in passing. You are the head coach of, and, and we were talking about this off mic before I got on, I can never pronounce it right. It's at Atlanta? Perfect. Spot on, yep. Okay, I got it. And it's <laughs> a new group that is going to be based in New York City, and I believe you're moving there if you haven't already. So tell me a little bit about what, the group is about and how this opportunity came to be. Yeah, so um, it, it's a team that started and the, uh, the brainchild, I guess, of uh, Mary Kane, um, who I uh, made the Junior World Champs with and like had we bumped into each other here and there, just being on like the racing circuit, if you will. And so, um, yeah, this is a, a new team that she's kind of created and um, had this idea for of it's a it's a team that. Um, basically all the it's a female only team or female athlete only team i should say um and so all the athletes are paid um like w2 w4 style um instead of the traditional 1099 um which is excellent and it's a nonprofit that does outreach work in um in Man- or in new york city area and so for communities in need and kind of a health and wellness outreach and um, helping bring people to the sport, but not all, but also not just relying strictly on running, but just teaching them people how to eat healthier and how to exercise in other ways as well. You know what I mean? And um, that's something that we're I'm really excited to be a part of. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's been a really fun fun time. I'm I'm currently trying to find an apartment in New York City, which is a <laughs> a fun endeavor to say the least. <laughs> so very interesting. Um, so yeah, it's it's a really exciting thing, and um, Molly Molly's not a part of the team, um, but uh, I'm obviously still coaching her, and so she's fully supportive of me and um, in my coaching career, which is I, I really appreciate and is like is really awesome. For her. Are you full time as head coach of at Atlanta? Yes, yes, I am. Yeah, so I'm I'm the head coach. I'm kind of just finishing recruiting now, and um, we're getting into the the season. And I'll yeah, I'll be moving moving down in um, September, I believe. We'll see. Um, just kind of again figuring out the whole uh, <laughs> New York City uh, apartment hunting is a is a fun thing. <laughs> Take me through the recruiting process for the team. I mean, this is a very unique model, as you just described. I don't believe it's backed by a shoe company or just like one brand in general where you know these these athletes will be contractors of the brands they're going to be em- employees of the of the nonprofit so what does that look like for you in terms of bringing people into the fold yeah it's um so yeah so our sponsors there are tracksmith um noon airbnb um and then uh, a decent amount of philanthropic donations as well there and so um all of those organizations and people are coming together to really support and kind of hopefully change the vision of what um, what a track and field professional team kind of looks like at the end of the day, hopefully, and that's our goal. And um, so it's it's getting people who are interested in um, in being a part of something that's different, um, different from the norm. Um, so the athletes there will be working kind of that 15 to 20 hours a week. Um, towards the nonprofit's goals of uh, like the health and wellness reach, reach, uh, outreach that I mentioned earlier. And so 
Um, that's something that's really like exciting, but it also takes a, a certain type of athlete, you know what I mean? And that's, that's been some conversations that I've had with people of like, Hey, listen, this is different. You know what I mean? Like you are going to be expected to work and you like, we're going to be based in proper Manhattan. So like in Manhattan isn't for everybody as well. You know what I mean? And so that's something that's, um, yeah, it's been, it's, it's finding the athletes that fit well into the situation. Cause at the end of the day, if an athlete comes in and um, isn't happy in the situation, then they're not going to succeed. And that's just a lose-lose for both people, you know, or both me, the organization of Atalanta, as well as the the athlete, you know. And so um, we, we understand that. We also understand, like, there's a, a, there's a bit of a pay. Like, people, I don't think, fully understand how little some people get paid that are, quote-unquote, professional athletes. And so... Um, that was another thing that, um, Mary kind of brought to my attention as one thing she wanted to do, which was, um, yeah, like our, our base salary starts at like 50 K basically. And so that's something that's, um, and got, kind of goes up from there, which is uh, unheard of, which is really exciting, you know? And so, um, because we do want to help these, um, these women kind of grow their careers, but also grow, um, they're running and be able to chase both dreams, you know, and, um, they're going to be working with some local organizations that help us like do that nonprofit work, but also working with our sponsors and stuff like that. And so by the time everything kind of wraps up and they're like, you know what, maybe, uh, I'm ready to move on and, um, I'm ready to like hang up the spikes and stop running like professionally. They, they have an option. Like hopefully we'll be able to offer them a position to continue working at Atlanta. But if not, like they're able to, um, maybe they've been working with one of our sponsors, like, Hey, listen, you've been working with this person for the last five, 10 years, you know, like they're, they're an excellent person and maybe you should think about possibly bringing them on to your organization. And they don't have that massive gap in their uh, resume that can, can sometimes happen where uh, mm-hmm. an employer might look at it and go, so like, what did you do during this period? <laughs> like, did you break four on the mile? No. Like, did you run the marathon? Make an Olympic no? team? No. No. Yeah. Like, what did you do? You know, like, oh, I, I broke 15 in the, in the 5k as a female. And I, Oh, what's that mean? You know what I mean? It's just like one of those things where like there is that disconnect um, where not everybody understands running times or like what it's all about. And so um, this is our, our goal is to kind of like try to try to change that at the end of the day, which is, I think, a, a really, really cool vision at the end of the day. That's phenomenal. I love it. Um, the team itself, will it mostly be comprised of long distance athletes, half marathoners, marathoners, folks who are focused on the roads, or will you still have some women who are keen to compete on the track at shorter distances? It's definitely going to be more of a, a, a track based team to start out. Um, okay. um, in the like mid distance to like up to like a 5k, 10k, um, is kind of, sure. um, the athletes we're looking for now, but understanding that again, kind of what I touched on earlier that like, an athlete can run a 5k 10k and then like if they wanted to try to step up to the marathon and like dabble in the marathon but then also dabble in like the 5k 10k later they could do that you know and that's something that like i'm flexible in and it's, it's helping athletes uh sit down with them and just like look at what their goals are and find the best way to help attain them you know what i mean and hopefully attain them and then set new ones you know what i mean and um keep moving forward in the sport Aside from Molly, are you working with any other athletes, elite or professional that aren't going to be a part of the new club? Um, nope. I don't work with any other athletes that are uh, 
professional athletes. I do have some like semi-professional athletes that I coach on the side, uh, friends and stuff like that. Um, who um, like I, I really enjoy coaching at the end of the day, and so it's a lot of fun. Um, I actually coach um, uh, Molly's sister as well, which is kind of funny. Um, and then um, I also there's a training program that people can sign up for um, that we run through Final Surge on the Atlanta website, and so um, they can check that out as well. And um, so I coach uh, some people through there, and uh, it's people looking to get any like. Austin qualifiers or run their first 5k or it's even people being um like have 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 hit those like the bqs and looking to run uh faster than that you know did you start to see more interest in your coaching after the olympics and molly's medal oh yeah there's always <laughs> tons of dms <laughs> my dms just like got blown up and so like the dm requests or whatever and so that was um yeah, sorting through those and like, yeah, there's always yeah people who are reaching out, which is which is really cool. At the end of the day, you know, the, uh, I feel really supported from the, the the running community, which is awesome. What's your own relationship with running look like right now? Are you still getting out for some miles on your own? Are you healthy? Number one, I'd love to just understand <laughs> that. Yeah, I'm healthy right now, so, but that's mostly because I haven't been running much. <laughs> um, so yeah, I to be honest with you, it's been really hot recently, and I hate the heat. And so um, Molly definitely gets annoyed with how much I complain about the heat. Same with my girlfriend as well, and like <laughs> just generally, the people around me know that I don't like the heat. And so um, I'm with you, man. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's really tough. And so it's really hot. I think it was like 90 something today and like really high humidity. And so once like during the summer when it started being cooler in the evenings, I'll I'll definitely like like I was running back then a little bit like and just going out for like I mean, I went out for like a 30 minute run one day and I was like, oh, that was long. And then then like two days later, I went out for like a 75 minute run. And so like I just kind of run for as long as I want and I'm not afraid to like walk it in now as well, which is kind of like, like, yeah, I'll just walk it in, even though it's a mile back to my house. Like, I don't care, you know, and so that's kind of that's what running looks like for me right now. I really like. I bike with, um, with a lot of people, like not fast biking, I should say. I just bike like with Molly and stuff like that and other athletes that I coach. And so that's kind of my, like what I, my mode of transportation, if you will, for right now. All right. To wrap this one up and bring it full circle. My last two questions are central mass related. I believe sure. I've asked them to all the other central masters that I've had on the show. If, if not all of them, certainly Sweet. most, but first one is, what is your favorite run back home? Oh, dang, that's difficult. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a tricky one. So you have um, like the tried and true, like you have the Boylston Rail Trail or West Boylston Rail Trail. That's like the easy like go to. Um, and then I really like John Murray turned me on to the like it's the it's in Clinton, like Clinton Reservoir. That's a really nice one. Oh, by the dam. Yeah, by the dam. Yeah, that mm-hmm. like I never knew about that. That gets really windy though, and it's just totally exposed as well. So like on hot days, terrible place to run. But yeah, that's that's that or Mount Pisgah, like right by my where I grew up, mm-hmm. uh, right by my house. Like I feel like I can just you you can just get lost in those trails. It's super hilly, but like you just run slower and yeah. I I have to say Mount Pisgah because that's like. 
that's where I kind of like, aside from the five mile route, that's like definitely the like most common place that I've ever run, I should say. All right. I don't know if you're a brunch guy, but I'm a brunch guy. So where are we going for brunch after we go for a oh. trail run on, on Mount Pisgah when we're both back in central Massachusetts next? Where are we going? Um, there, where are we going to go? I'm trying to think. Um, there's in Hudson Center, actually, there is a... There's a diner. It used to be Nick's Diner, um, and yes, do you? Oh, you know about? Okay, so my dad I and do his, know. my dad and his like best friend who lives like a couple of houses down from me, like they would go every Saturday to to go get brunch there. Like it was like they it basically didn't stop until COVID happened, and they like wouldn't miss a weekend. It was wild. So yeah, I'd have to say like that's definitely like the diner, or there's a diner off of 140 in like Shrewsbury near Boylston. Like on like there's a downhill section and it's like on the right. That's also another good one. Um, but I forget the name of that. It's by yeah. I forget the name. Of that I don't one, think but. that's the country kettle. That's more like kind of Boylston. That's on 140 in Boylston, but yeah. it's not on the downhill. I think I know where you're where you're talking, but I can't picture it right now. Yeah, I I can't know. I don't remember the name, but it's a total hole in the wall. Like it's, but it's great. It, that's where I go after like the West Boylston like rail trail run. Is like especially usually I run there with like if I'm meeting John Murray or somebody like that. It's, is it uh, by the old stone church like out that way? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly where it that is. is. The that is the country kettle, or it used to be called the country kettle. I would go there all the time. That spot's great. Yeah, it's a sweet like. <laughs> it's a like again another like hole in the wall but it's it's sweet and maybe that's the best diners period is like the hole in the wall is like you know um but yeah that's yeah that, those are the places to go so where's where's your favorite run where's like where's your go-to run in uh, central Mountain? so west boylston rail trail i'll often okay. park at the old stone church and there are two ways that i can go so i'll park at the old stone church and then there's a loop that is wooded in covered so it's it's better on a hot day maybe not because you get like just crushed by the horse flies but you go down by the reservoir actually and they're big wide fire roads and now i look at them i'm like oh those are actually pretty technical compared to the kind of california <laughs> carpet i have out here yeah. but i've always i've always viewed that as as just a real like nice pleasant eight mile run but what i'll often do too especially if i want to run fast or do a workout is I'll park at the old stone church. I'll run on the road up the hill for, I think it's a mile and a half to the trailhead. And then I'll get on the West Boylston rail trail and I'll run that all the way out past the end. So if you get to the end of the rail trail, there's a parking lot there. If you hang a hard right, um, it's, it's not as well groomed, but it goes out for about another mile and you could even cross that road and keep going. I mean, it goes, it goes for quite a bit, but that's like an awesome 12 mile out and back run. And I just love being along the Quinnipiac Poxit River there. It's really peaceful for me. I mean, still to this day, it's probably my favorite place to run in the entire world. I mean, when I ran my first couple marathons in the early 2000s and was still living back there, I would just go to the rail trail and I'd run because it's not that long. I'd go back and forth and I would do like 22 miles on like a three and a half mile stretch because I could get water at each end. But I think <laughs> yeah. that's the run. I think that's the run that I would do mostly so I could just walk over to Country Kettle afterward and get something to eat. Oh, yeah. Also, I, I looked up the diner. It's Sheffy's 1921 Diner, which with a name like that, huh. you cannot go wrong. It you is, can't it, go wrong. You cannot go wrong. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's sweet. It's a, it's a good place. You'll have to check that out, out as well. It's just, yeah, a total hole in the wall. It might even be like a train car. I forget. Like it's, 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 an, it's a great place though. 
Well, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, there are a lot of train car diners in central Massachusetts, certainly in Worcester in the city, but mm-hmm. the surrounding towns as well. So, all right, next time we're back, I'll hit you up. We'll go for a run and then we'll go for brunch afterward and continue this conversation. John, I really appreciate your time. You've been very generous with it. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I said this to Mike Smith. I'll say it to you as well. Um, I said it to Colin Benny as well. There, There is this like strange pride when I see someone from central Massachusetts achieving success. I've been really excited to see what you've done in this, in this short coaching journey of yours so far. And I wish you all the best moving forward. And I thank you for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, you know, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a great place to be and people should definitely check it out. Sure. Thank you again for having me. All right. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to both New Balance and Gooder for sponsoring this episode of the show. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is an absolute workhorse, and it's been my go-to trainer for most of my non-workout runs in 2021. It's got great cushioning underfoot that's protective but not too soft, providing a responsive ride that I really enjoy and appreciate. Check it out today at newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation. Gooder sunglasses are just the best. Not only do they look good, they don't bounce, they don't slip, and they're polarized to protect your eyes. Best of all, they come in a number of awesome styles and colors. I'm personally a big fan of the OGs, and my favorite colors are a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble. If you'd like to support me in the podcast, treat yourself to a pair, or maybe two or three of Gooders, and head over to gooder.com slash Mario and get 15% off your entire order. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. That's M-A-R-I-O to get 15% off your order. Your face will thank you. Couple more things before we wrap up. I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my longtime producer, John Summerford, who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for running the AM Shakeout social media accounts and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. Last thing, if you are digging this podcast, I think you will love my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout, and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, 5-10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>